This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it cannot be destroyed by my co-host, John Syracuse. Hi, John. Hi, Dan. I'm uh, Dan Benjamin. This is uh, today's Friday, February 24th, 2012. This is episode number 56. We've got two great sponsors today, AppsFire.com and MailChimp.com. Tell you more about them as the program goes on. We also want to thank MacMiniColo.net for providing the bandwidth for this episode. It's where I host a couple Mac Minis, and you can host yours there too. Check it out at MacMiniColo.net slash 5x5 special deals. Just for you guys. It's Friday, John Syracuse. Friday. Yes, it is. And you were on some kind of uh, work-related phone call. I was. Are you doing all right? Yeah, you know, my Skype mute button still doesn't work. This is really bothering me. What is it you're doing behind the, the mute button all the time? I don't know, taking a drink, clearing my breath. I just like to be muted when I'm not. Yeah, I understand. But, but since the mute button works, but there's no visual indication. I used to blank out the little person with the <laughs> sphere-shaped right. head yeah. thing, and it would like put a line through it and dim it, and you could tell that it was muted. Now, nothing visually changes, and the tooltip doesn't even change to mute, unmute. So the only way I can tell whether I'm muted is to go to the menu. Are you on 2.8 or are you on the newer version? I haven't changed a thing. I'm on the old version. I've always been on the old version. I never upgraded to 5. And it's a mystery to me why this suddenly doesn't work. Maybe this is what Skype does, is that instead of just completely breaking the older version to get you to go to the new version, they just slowly eliminate features one by one until eventually yeah. all you can do is launch the app and it can't type, can't connect, can't do anything, and then you'd be forced to upgrade. It's working because I considered, I'm like, well, this mute doesn't work. Why don't I just upgrade? How bad could it be? But it said, no, let me. So I'm sticking it out. But if, if there's a long period of time where you can't hear me, I'm probably muted and don't know it. All right. All right. You ready for some follow-up? Yes. So in the last show, we talked about Mountain Lion a lot. Uh, and I was mentioning the way to, one of the ways to bypass Gatekeeper is that you could right-click uh, on an icon or control-click, whatever, uh, in the Finder and select Open, which nobody ever does, but which, if you do, will uh, not prompt you to say, are you sure you want to open this, blah, blah, blah. And someone in the chat room mentioned that it might be, are you sure it's not a bug? And I said I wasn't sure. Uh, but then subsequently in the chat room, uh, TMC, double underscore, said that Apple actually advertises this feature on its site. It's, this is quoting from Apple's website. You can even temporarily override your settings by control click by control clicking and install any app at any time. Gatekeeper leaves it all up to you. So they're advertising that feature as like, power users, don't be afraid. All this Gatekeeper stuff is basically not for you. Uh, if you really want to open something, you will never be prevented from opening it. Just use this thing that no one but you will ever do. So that's an interesting use of an obscure feature that probably has gone completely unused by anybody and now suddenly has a purpose. Uh, but no, it's not a bug. Uh, Marco was excited that he got to correct something on the show. Uh, I think I mentioned uh, the last show about how I was hoping some new Mac Pros would come out, but they were still waiting for those. And then I was upset about the Ivy Bridge delay that had been reported. Right. Well, first on Marco's show, he he talked more about the Ivy Bridge delay, and apparently that story about the delay was overblown, and really only the dual-core ones are, are delayed, and Apple's not going to use the dual-core ones probably anyway. So it's not that, uh, not that uh, important to Apple. But the second thing is that he said that 
the Mac Pros are not waiting on Ivy Bridge. They're waiting on the uh, Xeon E5 Sandy Bridge CPUs. Now, of course, that's also a speculation, but it's probably, I don't know. I don't even know if it's a good guess. Like, it's, you know, the, the reason the Mac Pros aren't here is because, you know, I don't know what the Mac Pros are waiting on. It's, it's, we don't know what they're going to have in them when they ship. Uh, it could be that Apple just entirely skips that generation of CPU and doesn't release Mac Pros for another year or something. So, uh, but his point is that it's conceivable that Ivy Bridge delayed or not could be completely immaterial to the presence of Mac Pros. Uh, I just hope they release something. Something with a newer CPU than the ones they sell now. Uh, talked about Mac App Store only APIs and Mountain Lion, how you have to sell your app to the Mac App Store if you want to use certain APIs and how the, the number of those APIs is getting, uh, is increasing in Mountain Lion. Right. And I was talking about the iCloud APIs, which are generally Mac App Store only. Uh, and I said there's no technical reason why those APIs sh- couldn't be available to non-Mac App Store things. And it's, just, it's kind of like a carrot and stick approach where the carrot is you get to use these fun APIs and the stick is everybody else will be using these cool APIs and you won't, so you better get into the Mac App Store. Uh, many, many people suggested a more reasonable reason why the iCloud APIs in particular are limited to Mac App Store only applications. Uh, and that was that iCloud is a server that the server side service of iCloud costs Apple money to run. So letting any developer use it is basically saying Apple's going to run a bunch of servers for you and you can use them and store your data on them free of charge Mm -hmm. Uh, because iCloud is free to customers as well. Whereas if you sell your app to the Mac App Store, at the very least, Apple gets a 30% cut of your sales and that will help offset the server usage in iCloud. I'm not sure how much I buy that theory. First of all, you're allowed to have free apps in the Mac App Store, so that kind of hurts you there. I mean, I guess they get still get the $99 for you for the uh, developer membership, but, you know. But, it, I mean, I don't know. I, I think that that's a good reason that I should have mentioned, but I think if you were to ask Apple and, and got them in a moment of honesty, they would not tell you that the reason the iCloud APIs are for Mac App Store only is because they have to defer the cost somehow. Because if that was the case, if they're really interested in deferring the cost, I don't think 30% of app sales is going to come close to deferring the cost of the iCloud server infrastructure, the cost of development, everything. I think that Apple considers iCloud something they have to build. Uh, The fact that they're giving iCloud away for free to everyone shows that they know that they want everyone to use this much more than they want to actually make money off it. So that's got to be a cost center for them. Maybe it helps that they could possibly get a little bit of extra money from Mac App Store sales to offset the cost of iCloud, but uh, but I'm not sure. I think it's mostly because they're trying to encourage people to develop applications the way they want them to. And the way they want is you do it in the Mac App Store, your sandbox, you use the iCloud APIs. Uh, and I guess they have some degree of control over you as well if you're a registered Mac developer versus if you just download the uh, d- download Xcode for free and start hacking away at an application and then put it up on your website and it hammers the iCloud servers or something. It's harder for them to come and find you and say, please stop doing that. I don't know. Please stop distributing your application that hammers our servers. So as always with Apple, lots of tea leaf reading uh, and no actual (laughs) answers. The weird one there is notifications. In Mountain Lion, the big thing on the right side of the screen, the new uh, icon in the upper right corner, 
that shows you notifications for like, oh, you know, you have a reminder set or something in your calendar or a to-do list item that has a reminder set. There's a whole bunch of ways you can be notified notification center in, in Mountain Line. Uh, and there's a question of like, is, is there any server-side component to that? Like, what if I don't even sign up for iCloud? I still have notification center. Why shouldn't someone be able to write a Mac application, not distribute it through the Mac App Store, but still have their application pop up notifications. Like say you're writing an IM client and you want it to pop up a notification notification center when a certain person logs on because you've set up an alert for that. That has nothing to do with iCloud. That's not using any of Apple's server resources. It's purely a completely client-side API to display a notification in notification center. Uh, and I don't think Apple syncs those notifications across your devices. Now, obviously, if you're using an application like I, like iCal, like Calendar, or Contacts or something that can be synced through iCloud, then there is a component. But it's kind of weird that Notification Center, which you can, if you squint, you can look at it and say that's an entirely client-side new API, new piece of UI. That gets caught up into the Mac App Store only thing. So that also makes me think that deferring server costs is not the reason, uh, is not the main reason why they make an API uh, Mac App Store only. Otherwise, why, why would they make notifications Mac App Store only? Someone sent in a correction about how I'm pronouncing, speaking of IM applications, how I'm pronouncing the, the instant message application for the Mac called A-D-I-U-M. How do you pronounce that? Uh, I've heard it two ways. I've heard it Adium and I've heard it Adium. Um, yeah. I, personally, I say Adium, but I have no idea what if that's correct. And I, as, as has been evidenced over the last several years of doing these shows, I'm the wrong person to look to for correct pronunciation of anything. How do you say it? I say Adium too, but I was corrected on Twitter uh, that it's supposed to be like the word stadium. And this is how the originator, Adam Iser, I-S-E-R, I guess he's the guy who originally wrote it. He's okay. described as the originator in the tweet, says it, that it rhymes with stadium. Adium, stadium. Hmm. Well, you know, this is something where you have to, the original creator has to have some input on it. I mean, they're the ones that came up with it. They're the ones that say... Now, what's interesting is you get uh, uh, the creator of, of Linux, Linus Torvalds, says, I pronounce Linux as Linux. That's how he says it. I still... In, Does he say that? I thought he he wanted the other way. I, Linux? Yeah. No. Because it rhymes with Linus? No, but his name is Linus in his own... Oh, right. in his so that, own that I've got it backwards in my mind. Language. Yeah. So, uh, he is the creator of it, but yet in his very open source mindset, he says, this is how I pronounce it. He doesn't say this is how it must be pronounced. So the Adium guy, is he saying this is the correct way to pronounce it? Or is he just saying this is, this is how I say it? This was a tweet from the Adium, Adium Twitter account, twitter.com slash A-D-I-U-M. I don't know who controls that account, but the this, the tweet, and I'll read it verbatim, says, the correct pronunciation of A-D-I-U-M is debatable. Adam Iser, the originator, called me the stadium way. So that's probably the proper way. So this is a personified Twitter account. We're saying, called me, I'm the, I'm the application. So ADM sounds like the right way to do it. All right, here, I'm going to play this for the benefit of the listeners now. I have the clip from L- Linus himself. Let me see how badly I got it wrong linus or linus what's exactly your preferred pronunciation um when i speak swedish it's linus when i speak finnish it's linus 
When I speak English, it's Linus, and I really don't care how people pronounce my name. But Linux is always Linux. Well, it cuts off. He says Linux is always Linux, so... Yeah, that's pretty unequivocal. Yeah. So th- we just need the idiom guy to weigh in. The lesson for this, I think, is that uh, when making a product and choosing a product name, uh, and same thing for like domains and stuff, there, there are some rules that you can think about. Like, did you pick a good domain name for your product or service or application? And you and you have to come up with some criteria. How, how do I... What makes a domain name good? What makes a product name good? And I would think if you went through this exercise... Uh, my big things on domain names are uh, easy to spell if I tell you what it is, uh, not too long, uh, not already taken, uh, not a synonym for something that's bad, uh, you know, doesn't have a lot of homonyms, all sorts of things like that. And for a product name, this is similar, like make it so that the obvious pronunciation in whatever language you consider most important uh, is the obvious pronunciation. I, I I think uh, with Linux, he basically did that because that's how everybody says it. They say L-I-N. They're not, they're not inclined to say Linux. Yeah. Uh, but the, you know, the knowing the creator's name was Linus got that confused. And the second thing is, from the very start, have a pronunciation guide. I can't tell you how many uh, sites I go to for some open source tool or whatever, and I, I, I would expect to see like, an FAQ or an about page or something, and I expect one of the items, perhaps the first item to that page, to be, how do I pronounce your name? Just to make sure, like, put that in there, you know? Uh, and then there, of course, the people like S-Q-L-I-T-E, that product, yeah. where it's just, it's hopeless, and there's no obvious way, and it's just a big, giant mess. But even something like M-Y-S-Q-L, uh, you, can, you can get into trouble real, real fast if your thing becomes popular and pe- people start pronouncing it one way, uh, and it's not the way you want it. So the moral of the story is pick... Pick names that have an obvious pronunciation and documented. Maybe documented on like your very first homepage. <laughs> we'll have a big banner with the name of your product and right underneath it, those little pronunciation things or a button you can click to hear how it's pronounced. Yeah. All right. Uh, on the last show, I was talking about, and I was actually, it was the title of the show, The Region of Pain, where you have a 10 point something point zero release that is probably full of bugs. And you have the point one and the point two. And it takes a while to crank up with the, with the you know, minor subversion until the thing kind of settles down and all the bugs are ironed out. And I mentioned that other uh, Mac OS X releases that have had longer, have had a longer time in the market before their successor came along, got really high up on that last number. Uh, and I, I, thought, I couldn't remember if one of them went to double digits or something. So TMC double underscore again in the chat room pointed me to a link uh, entitled a useless analysis of OS 10 release dates. And I put that in the show notes. And that just shows how far each one got. So I'll just go through them here. Snow Leopard got to 0.8. Well, we don't know. Maybe it'll get to 0.9. But right now, Snow Leopard is on 0.8. Leopard got to 0.8. Tiger was the only one that went to double digits. Tiger got to 0.11. Uh, Panther got to 0.9. Jaguar got to 0.8. Puma got to 0.5 and Cheetah got to 0.4. Uh, so Cheetah obviously was like the big, slow as molasses, horrible release. We can't wait to, for things, this thing to get replaced. So that got replaced pretty quickly. And Puma got replaced pretty quickly too. But all the other ones got into like the, you know, the, the 8s, 9s, or 11s. Uh, so Lion's going to have to advance pretty quickly if it ever expects to get into the, you know, 8s, 9s, or 10s, or 11s before 10.8 lands this summer and i don't think it will make it it may it may end up ending its life kind of like cheetah and puma in the point fours and point fives which could possibly still be in the region of pain 
All right. And one thing, this one more thing, this isn't really follow up, but it's related to iCloud and it's a story that went by my eyes this week was that Apple has purchased some land in Oregon for another data center. Did you see that story? Oh, yeah. You know, I didn't I didn't read the whole thing about that. So maybe uh, where was it, it you read it? And I'll get it into the show notes. It's in the show notes already. Come, oh, come now. All right. Well, you said you were unprepared. It turns out I you're am unprepared. Now, my notes, I want I want you'll see. I'll, I'll go off track. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, I see. it. OK, yeah, there it is right there. Yeah. There's not much to the story other than the, the title. So this is in Prineville, Oregon. The Apple bought 160 acres for five point six million dollars. And the Apple spokesperson, the only statement quoted in this article that I linked is the Apple spokesperson says, we purchased the land and it's for a data center. So typical Apple disclosure, what more do you need to know? Uh, I, I always thought it was kind of weird with the North Carolina data center, how you know Apple purchases a big giant data center. It's going to be really fancy. It's costing lots of money and everyone was all excited about it. And uh, But it was on the East Coast. Yeah, and you're like, well, don't you need like at least two data centers if you're if you're interested in covering the United States? Well, don't you need one on the West Coast and one on the East, or maybe one in the middle? I forget about worldwide. Forget about anything. Like, just having one data center in the U.S. is weird. If you're if you're the future of your company is going to be like we're going to have an online platform, or whatever. Like, you know, because I'm sure Google and and all the other companies have data centers all over the place. They just they have to. Uh, so this is kind of the other shoe dropping, at least in the U.S. To say, okay, fine, at least we'll have an East Coast and a West Coast data center. Now, 100, 160 acres, acres are very confusing and misleading for most people because an acre seems like, wow, it's, you know, it's acres. That's, that's a huge space. I, I, 160 acres, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's about a quarter square mile. I, I can't do that math in okay. my head. I, I can visualize how big an acre is in my head, but uh, I don't know if 160 acres is big or small for a data center. I think there's... there's it's a, that's a that's a decent sized space, but it, it's not like they just acquired like a thousand square miles of space. Yeah. This is this is a, a large place for a nice sized building. They they'll have parking for you know all of that stuff, but this is not like a a campus. Yeah, well, so the other thing is I don't know where all of Apple's data centers are now. We all know about the North Carolina one because it was a big story and it was you know that. The, that that's the one that, that it was gigantic and expensive and it was they got a sweetheart deal on it from the North Carolina people and there was all sorts of stories related to that. But Apple surely has data centers all over the place already and we don't know where all of those are. Uh, but seeing Apple buy another one, I guess, is a good sign for the future of iCloud to show they're committed to it. I still it still wigs me out and we had a whole show about this, how Apple is filling its data center with hardware and a lot of software that it does not write. This gets back to the Joel Spolsky thing, which I think I mentioned on the show when we discussed this about don't outsource your core competency. And you've actually discussed things like this on uh, on Build and Analyze, maybe also on Back to Work. But but on this most recent Build and Analyze, you're talking with Marco about what is it that you what is it that you do well. Uh, and if the answer is not, I'm really good at figuring out how small businesses should pay taxes then maybe have someone else do that so you can spend your time developing software or right. whatever it is that you consider the core competency of your company. So every company has a whole bunch of things they have to do and they have to decide which one of these things is the thing that we're good at. And if you asked Apple, they would probably say like, well, the purpose of our company is not to be really good at managing payroll or to have really good insurance on our facilities or to have the, the you know, to be really good at, at cutting the lawns outside of our buildings and have great parking. You know, these are all may things be things that they want to do, but I'm going to say, is this what Apple is about? 
And if the answer is no, then pay someone to cut the lawn. Have some, you know, hire some people to figure out the facility stuff. And you know, that that stuff you can outsource. But you wouldn't, for example, outsource uh, designing the user interface for our next version of iOS because Apple would say that's what we do. That's our that's our core competency, and we would never outsource that. Oh, we're really crunched. We don't have enough people to get iOS six out on time. Quick, let's start outsourcing some of the work to India. Unless they're Apple's employees in India, they wouldn't like find an outsourcing company and say, hey, we need some screens designed for iOS 6. Could you take note? Because that's their core competence. They would never let that go. If Apple wants to base its future on iCloud and have iCloud be the platform for the next 10 years and all the other things that they said many different times, don't you think they would have more of a stake in what goes in those data centers? Yes, Apple software is going in there too. The software that implements iCloud is written by Apple, but they're not using Apple hardware. They're they're not using Apple like infrastructure software in terms of storage management or you know they, they're reportedly using Windows Azure thing and who knows what else they're using. Like at some point, it seems it will seem weird. Maybe you know if, if Apple's strategy to base their future on iCloud is successful, at some point in the future, many years from now, it will seem weird that Apple's main and most important business and infrastructure is running on machines they don't build uh, and running infrastructure software that they didn't make. So they have to pay other companies for that, especially if that other company is like Microsoft or Oracle or whoever else it is versus the approach of someone like Google who basically does everything themselves because they recognize this is our core competency. We run online services and we're not going to be, we're going to be the masters of our own destiny as far as this is concerned. <laughs> we're not going to be beholden to some third-party hardware or software vendor to deal with this. We're going to do it all ourselves. Uh, it's kind of weird because you say, well, Apple doesn't make server operating systems. They don't make server hardware. They sort of did, but they, they try, you know, does Apple have to make server hardware? Maybe that's not their core competency. I, I think the hardware is easier to argue that Apple doesn't necessarily have to do it. Even though they do make computer hardware, they make consumer hardware, not enterprise. But the software, like not just the operating system, but the software that manages the data center, that, that the storage management, process management, uh, load balancing, failover, just whatever all the things you have to do in the data center, if they're going to outsource all of that, that seems weird to me. So anyway, I don't want, I want to repeat the whole content of that past right. show. Like, that was a great know. show though. But that's still, whenever I see these data center stuff, it, it wigs me out a little bit. Autodidact in the chat room says uh, 160 acres is quarter square mile, but that's half a mile by half a mile. So that actually is a, a little bigger than I was imagining. Well, there you go. There you go. All right. Now, that's how big your plot of land is about, right? About 100. No, I, my, my parents' house was on like a quarter acre. So that's how I visualize an acre. I just take like the house that I grew up in and I take the property and I multiply it by four. You know, What kind of acreage do you have where you are? Less than that. Much less. Barely enough to hold the house. <laughs> but you're making it anyway. Yeah, it's a more densely populated here than in Texas where everything's bigger. So today I thought we would talk about file systems. How do you feel about that? I I, I would love that. That would be amazing. People have been really wanting to hear a ZFS discussion for a long time. Why? What is ZFS? Who cares? Is it in OS 10? Is it not in OS 10? Will it ever be in OS 10? Is it dead? Is it alive? How far back are you going to take us? Are you going to take us back to HFS, HFS Plus? 
this is where my notes become like uh, my problem with notes is when I construct them, I tend to put too much into them. And then I realize, oh, for this one bullet point, I have five paragraphs of text, which I can't glance at. And I don't want to read verbatim. Like I need to condense it so that I can look at like single line bullet points in my outline view to say, okay, remind, remember to talk about that. Remember to talk about that. But instead I have this big sprawling thing of text. I, I've taken to putting certain sections of the big sprawling wall of text in bold so I can just glance at the bold parts to remind me. So this may be a little bit scattered, uh, but we'll see what we can do here. So the file system stuff, I thought I would start with what I wrote about file systems in uh, my macOS 10, 10.7 Lion review. And I think that was the first time I'd really talked about file systems in, in a macOS 10 review. I'd written about it on in separate articles and about the possibility of ZFS being a macOS 10 and what ZFS was. I remember when ZFS was first coming out and I don't know, like 10 years ago or something, maybe eight years ago, they had all these cool videos online about them and I would link them and say, but boy, look at this cool thing because I'm, I'm into file systems. But when it came time to do the macOS 10 review, I didn't have much to say about it until there was that big rumor about ZFS coming to macOS 10. Uh, and basically what happened is that Sun went to Apple and pitched them on their new file system. They said, hey, you know, we've got this new file system. It's called ZFS. Maybe you've seen stuff on the web about it. Let's, we're going to come and pitch your engineers. So they did a presentation and said, here's ZFS. And the engineers asked them hard questions and so on and so forth. Uh, and the team or the people responsible for the file system at Apple sort of decided that, yeah, let's try the ZFS thing because this could be our ticket to having a new file system. And Apple is not above going outside for something, uh, for some software that it needs. Uh, the main barrier that I can imagine to the typical Apple mindset is, well, can we control this? So, for example, Apple adopted the KHTML product, project from the KDE and the, the Linux platform and they sort of made it their own by turning it into WebKit because the open source license allowed them to do that. Their chance, you know, WebKit is still open source. It's an open source project. But Apple basically took over development of that thing and gave it a new name and went off and ran with it. So even though this is something created by someone else, they're not beholden to someone for advances in their web browser technology. And similarly for the BSD layer in, in their operating system, BSD is... is uh, free for an open source and you know free for commercial use as long as they release the sources which they do as part of the darwin open source releases and all that stuff uh so the question was well zfs can we take this and run with it like we like the fact that someone else made it and we'll continue to develop it but if if we are ever find ourselves at cross purposes with sun will we be okay so that was one of the concerns uh we like the technology it seems like Sun's open source license allows us to do what we did with WebKit or BSD or any of the other open source things that we use where we won't be uh, under the thumb or waiting on Sun to make certain changes. And, you know, we'll, we'll maintain our own port and make sure that it works in Mac OS X and go with that. And I don't remember how far it got. I think the farthest it got was like on Apple.com webpage for Snow Leopard. It said uh, stuff about ZFS and you'll be able to use ZFS. Isn't that cool? Uh, that was early in the development process, and then eventually that text disappeared from Apple.com. And as we all know, that uh, Apple uh, did not ship their operating system with ZFS as the default file system or even as a supported file system, although you could get it from Apple.com for a long time. You could download, here is Apple's port of ZFS, and try it, and it was just buggy and not complete, and you're kind of glad they didn't do anything with it. Did they? They might have even released a version of server with support for it uh, built into it. But the thing is, it, it basically just fizzled, and there's many questions as to why what happened is it because 
uh, Sun was sued by NetApp over patents in the file system, or later people say, well, it was because they knew Oracle was going to buy Sun, or because Oracle did buy Sun, or they def- decided that ZFS was a not good, not a good technical fit for them. Inside Apple, I imagine there were definitely two factions: the people who really thought ZFS was awesome and that Apple should adopt it, and the people who thought it's better for server type platforms and not great for a consumer platform. But the upshot is that. Here we are now in 2012, and the default file system for Mac OS X is, as it ever was, HFS+. And HFS+, is a very old file system. So I thought during the line review, this would be a good time for me to take stock of this. And so I did a section called The State of the File System. Uh, and in it, I described uh, a little bit of the story and what, what the current file system is and why it needs to change. And... I thought this was something worth explaining because most of the time you bring up file systems to even even to nerds, but people who aren't into file systems, like you talk to computer programs, they're like, well, what do I care what the file system is? Like, can I get files off of it? Does it does it work? Then why does it need to change? And I, that's a reasonable position. And again, not just for regular users. Regular users don't even know the file system exists or what you're talking about. And for actual programmers, they say, well, HFS plus is fine. Like, they, the thing is, they don't have a way to... If you're not into file system technology, you don't have a good way to judge what makes a good file system. Uh, because, because basically you have reliability, which is, well, does it seem to work most of the time? Uh, and I guess you kind of have speed, but people tend to put speed onto the hardware. They're like, oh, this hard disk is really slow, or this operating system is slow, or this version of this operating system is slow, or this application is really slow to launch. Uh, or any of those type of things tend not to be laid at the feet of the file system because it's this constant. And since it hasn't changed much in such a long time, it's hard to say, oh, this would be faster if we had a different file system or, or anything like that. But there are better criteria for judging a file system. And file systems have come a long way since HFS Plus, which is derived from HFS and so on and so forth. So you can follow the link in the show notes to that. The link takes you directly to that particular section of my line review and you can read about it. Uh, at length, I'll summarize the a few of the things that uh, I complained about. Uh, first was that uh, HFS Plus, in my very long experience with it, uh, tends to corrupt itself. <laughs> so it's not not a hardware problem, like a software. Problem. Right. So you have you have disk disk uh, was called disk first aid a long time ago. Yeah. It's called disk utility now. Uh, if you run that on your Mac and say you can you can verify or repair. You can verify your boot disk or you can repair another disk. So if you boot from a different disk, this is or even just hit verify on your boot disk, chances are pretty good it will find problems. And what is it what is it gonna it has a bunch of mumbo jumbo. It's gonna say like uh, incorrect extent block or bitmap error or something. You know, it's gonna say all these weird stuff that you don't understand. And they're gonna show up in little red text and you're gonna be like, uh, what the heck is that? And then if it's not your boot disk, you can hit repair and it will go through and grind, grind, grind and find these little errors and fix them and say, hey, repair successful. And then you run verify again and it'll say, okay, everything's great. Uh, this is not healthy behavior for file systems where the file system job is to keep track of where everything is. So when you ask for a file, it's gonna say, okay, well, where where is the data for this file? Uh, and if you don't think about it too much, you're like, oh, isn't it just like in one big long line and it reads off this. No, it's spread all over the place in little pieces and it has to keep track of where all the little pieces are, what order they go in, you know, and on and on until like how many files are in this directory? Where do I get to those files? What are the names of those files? All this information about where stuff is on your disk 
the file system has data structures that it manages to keep track of that. And of course, those data structures themselves are stored on the disk, and there's a whole big hierarchy of uh, layering for the storage. But broadly speaking, there, when I talk about file system metadata, it's the stuff that the file system stores to know where everything is. And when it finds these errors, it may a lot of them may be seemingly benign, like, oh, this should this file was actually deleted, but this space used by this file still marked as being in use in this thing that we use to keep track of what pieces of the disk are used or not. So I should just mark that as not in use anymore. I don't know how that happened, but I should fix it. All the way up to... Uh, I can't make heads or tails of this directory entry. I can't tell what's supposed to be in this directory. Or the directory entry says there's supposed to be 50 files in here, but I can only see two. So something's messed up here. So I'm not quite sure what to do. Should I change it so that the number says two instead of 50? Or maybe there really were 50 files in here and I should go try to scan the disk and see if I can reconstruct where those 50 files are. All this, again, is not a hardware problem. Your disk is not failing, uh, although this can be part of it. But these things can happen and do happen on HFS+. Plus when your hardware is perfectly fine. And this is not this is not a good thing. Not a good thing at all. It's very but, troubling, would you say? Yes. So Apple's been trying to address this with their file system for a while. The HFS Plus was derived from HFS, which was developed in like 1986 or something. So it was really old. Uh, and file system technology has been marching on. And especially in the server space, you want your server's disk to be resilient in the case of, you know, that someone yanked out the power club plug in the data center or you got a kernel panic or something like that, you don't want to lose all your data in the server space. So that was the first, the server was the first realm of let's care about our data and let's not accept that, oh, if someone pulls the plug, well, tough luck, everything's gone or you, you might lose everything. Uh, so journaling is one of the first things they use to address this where the file system writes a little, or writes a little diary of like, okay, I'm going to do this. And then it does it, and then it goes back to the, the list and says, okay, I did that thing. That's journaling in, in a broad sense. And what this lets you do is, uh, if the if plug goes out in the middle of you doing something, when you go back on, you should have a little entry in the journal that says, okay, I'm going to do this. And then you can look on your disk and see that it's like half done. And you, if you have enough information, you can, you can finish doing it at that point because you have your little journal entry of what you're going to do. Or you can say, uh, let's go back to the time before that happened and pretend that didn't happen at all. So it's trying to keep track of what you plan to do and whether it's been done or not. So when you when you start up a, an HFS Plus volume, uh, so they had a journaling to HFS Plus uh, that, that had some, uh, that uh, term, it terminated abruptly during the middle of something, it will say replaying the journal. So it will see those little journal entries and replay them and try to get you back into a consistent state. That's what they're always looking for in file systems is things have to be in a consistent state. All the little blocks of data have to be accounted for every files little blocks have to be there all the metadata has to match up so like i said if i say that there are two files in this directory there should be two files in there when i look at my little list of files in the directory inside the file system and i see five but the directory says i'm only supposed to have three something's wrong and i don't quite know what it is uh now this doesn't happen like crazy and hfs plus disks can take a huge number of these little tiny errors and you won't notice them. That's why I think, you know, everybody after they listen to the show could should reboot from their boot CD that came with their Mac or reboot from an alternate drive or from the recovery drive if they're using Lion to hold down Command R when you boot and run disk utility on your boot disk and click the repair button or just click verify and see if you find any errors. What you'd want to find is zero errors because that's that shows that your software is uh, resilient to the kinds of weird failures that you might have. And th the worst thing about HFS Plus, I think, is that you will get errors 
even though as far as you're concerned, nothing bad happened. You didn't, there was no power failure. Uh, no one kicked out the plug. Uh, nothing like that. So you're like, well, shouldn't, you know, under normal, even if applications crash under normal operation, like, I don't care if the application crashes. If the application crashes when it's in the middle of writing a file, it should be up to the, isn't the file system, you know, uh, the, the IO interface isn't its job to at least make sure the data is consistent. Yeah, your, your file itself could be scrambled. The contents of that file could be scrambled, but the file system should know, oh yeah, there's this file. It's got 20 bytes in it. Those 20 bytes are garbage because the app crashed and just spit out random memory into whatever, but it's exactly 20 bytes. I know how big it is. I'm not confused about where this file is. I'm not confused about the, the blocks that are allocated to it and this kind of thing. Everything is perfectly consistent as far as the file system goes. Those are the kind of errors that disk utility is finding. It's finding inconsistencies in keeping track of your data on disk. It doesn't care what the data is. The data could all be garbage. The file system's not concerned about that. It's just supposed to keep track of everything. Um, so that bothers me. And uh, the root cause of you know why that happens, there, there are many different reasons why that happens. We'll get into a, a little bit later. But the fact that it does happen is bad. Uh, the, the second one uh, is some issue that almost no one seems to care about except for ZFS nerds. And I think many, many more people should care about it. And I've been uh, excited. That's one of the reasons I was so excited about ZFS uh, is data integrity. Uh, this is getting into hardware errors where... You write a program that writes out the numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 to, to a file on disk. You want to be able to come back six months from now and read that file and get 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 back. Uh, and one of the reasons you might not get your contents back is a hardware problem. Uh, because remember, with these you know, hard disks especially, we're, we're magnetizing little tiny pieces of something on a spinning platter. And you know it's possible for one of those bits to flip the other way. Cosmic rays coming from the sky, hitting your flash chips, all sorts of hardware-related reasons that are not the fault of the software that Apple writes uh, that could make the data that you previously wrote to disk be incorrect. Uh, so this is mostly esoteric, academic type of thing. You're like, oh, well, you know, cosmic rays and bits flipping. That happens so rarely, and who really cares? And if one bit flips in your JPEG image, you know, who really cares? It doesn't make a difference. Um, but uh, what I quoted in my line reviewer are... I reference to some studies about, okay, well, how often does this happen? So say it happens like, you know, one in every million bits flips like once a year or something. Like, oh, that's no problem. And, and when most of these file systems were designed, disks were tiny. They were like, you know, the biggest hard disk you could get was 10 megabytes. That's not 10 gigabytes, people. That's 10 megabytes, you know. That's, that was a big hunkin' hard drive that you could buy for $1,000. And so I said, yeah, we get one bit flip error in every, you know, 100 gigabytes of data, but, you know, our drives are 10 megabytes, so we would have to let that drive sit there for 300 years before one of those bits flipped. Uh, so, fast forward to today, and it's not unheard of to have a terabyte hard drive. So, all of a sudden, that one, it's like the, I've said this before and mangled it, and I'll do it again, <laughs> the one in a million chance that means, you know, 100 people in China could do it, or 1,000 people in China could do it. I still can't do that math in my head. But the point is, once you get to really big numbers, that little infinitesimal odds of data of you know hardware based uh, bit rot suddenly become significant so uh did i did i get this quote i'll see this is where my notes are falling down here's the the quote from the study from from 2010 they studied uh one and a half million drives over a course of 41 months and they showed that 400,000 blocks had errors eight percent of which were discovered during raid reconstruction we'll talk about raid in a little bit uh so when you say, that when you do the odds, they look, you know, like, oh, I'm probably safe. But when you think about the idea 
that 400,000 blocks have gone bad across 1.5 million disks, that's not great odds. It's like a, you know, what is that? A a one in four error uh, chance that you have a bad block on your disk. Those, I don't like those odds because blocks are actually, you know, pretty big. And so at a certain point, it becomes someone's responsibility to make sure that the data on disk is correct. And we just keep getting more and more data. And I think the point that I made in the line article, and if not, I'll make it now, is that the data we're putting, or the or digitally storing, is becoming more and more important. Like if you lost your applications, you can re-download them. And if you lost your files, well, hopefully you had a backup of them and hopefully those backups aren't corrupted. But we all have our photos on our computers now, our photos of our kids. Instead of most of us don't print them and put them in albums anymore. Yeah. If you lost all the photos of your kids, it's a little bit more upsetting than even losing like your novel in progress or some work thing that you did uh, or videos of your kids or any, you know, the stuff we put in our computers is becoming extremely important. And to lose it because, well, you know, hardware is imperfect and I had I had a huge, you know, I have a 12 megapixel camera, which you can, you know, which aren't that expensive these days. And I took tons of pictures of my kid and I filled up my terabyte hard drive with tons of images uh, and I had backups and everything, but the backups are corrupted because the main disk was corrupted. And uh, I think it's the responsibility of the hardware and software vendor to eventually address this and say, we need a way to know, to know that the data is correct. And so the, the obvious way to do that is to do checksums on all your data, which is you write the data to the disk and then you write something derived from that data. So if that data ever changes, when you rederive that thing from it, uh, it will not match. Uh, this doesn't fix the problem of the bits flipping. The bits are always going to be bad, but what you want to do is you want to know uh, when it's bad. So, for example, your backup program could refuse to back up that new version of that file and say, well, I've got an old backup version of that file, but the new version, something's happened to it on the disk and it's messed up because the checksum should, says it should, it should be this. But when I read the actual data off that block, I get something different. So that data is messed up now. And I don't want to copy that on top of your old version. Because that's what happens with, with uh, corruption. If you don't know about it, eventually all your backups are filled with that corruption too. Like you, you literally have no way to know. If you were to go to an HFS Plus disk now and say, oh, can I check this disk to make sure all my pictures and stuff are correct? No, there's no way you can check because you don't know what the data is supposed to be. You can read what it is and say, well, like, here's the contents of this JPEG. Is that right? Maybe you could check, like, is it, a, is it does it comply with the JPEG format? But inevitably, there's going to be big sections of data on your disk. And you just have to go, I guess, I don't know. Is, is that what we wrote originally? It's, Probably, can, I mean, you open it up in the JPEG viewer and you can look at it. And if you see like big squiggly lines or these big, uh, you know, colored rainbow stripes on it, you know it's messed up. But that you have no re- way to really know. And executable programs are even worse because you have to like run it and make sure you you execute the piece of code that's on that block. It's 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 scary to think that you have you know millions and billions and billions of bytes of data, and you have no idea if any of it is correct. Uh, so ZFS, one of the many things ZFS did was address that. And they said, we were going to have end-to-end data integrity. That we will just put checksums in everything. And so if anything is screwed up anywhere, we will be able to find out. Uh, and in the course of the development of ZFS, they did interesting things like found bugs in uh, disk firmware or, or drivers or other sorts of pieces of the storage stack that people always assume were infallible. Like, you know, like have some card that has a bunch of uh, disks attached to it that you stick into a server and 
ZFS will start complaining like, oh, your, your file system is broken. It keeps complaining about errors. There's no errors here. And, and eventually you find out it's a, it's a bug in some chip on the controller for that disk drive. And you never would have found that before. It just would have been silently corrupting your data and, and, and you would have no idea that it was doing <laughs> it. Uh, and the final thing that ZFS brings to the table that uh, HFS Plus needs is really, this gets into the debate of what is a file system and what should it do. But there's a concept of a thing called logical volume management. And the quick summary of that is the idea that a single icon in your desktop that looks like one container for stuff could be made up of more than one physical thing. It's divorcing the physical from the logical. Uh, so physical volumes are like a big square metal thing that's a hard disk or a bunch of chips that make up a, a, an SSD. Uh, and a logical volume could be is a concept that says, okay, I take a little bit of storage from here, a little bit of storage from there, a little bit of storage from there, and I pull it all together into this one big thing. And this is what it looks like as far as the operating system is concerned. But behind the scenes, the physical reality is different. And there's all sorts of ways you can mix and match that. Uh, Many people will say that logical volume management is supposed to be separate from the file system. The file system should just be the concern of the you know physical device, and then logical volume management is a layer above that. ZFS sort of combines it all into one uh, big thing. Uh, now, getting to, I'm, I'm creeping up on something, believe it or not. Uh, well, we should, should we should creep up on our our first sponsor then. That's a good idea. All right, you can take a breather and use try try your mute switch. All right, here we go. All right. Uh, first sponsor, it's AppsFire. These guys are really cool. I'm, I've been using this site uh, a lot since in, in a week or two before they wanted to sponsor. So I'm, I'm pretty impressed with what they're doing. And here, basically, what's the problem? What are they trying to solve? I'll tell you, finding your way around the App Store. It's it's a big challenge. I mean, you've been you've been reading the news maybe over this last week. Apple apparently acquired some company. Because admittedly, they don't come out and say it's a problem, but when they're acquiring a company that does things like this to try and make the experience better, that's that's an admission that they want to make it better. Well, you you don't have to wait for them to figure out how to do that. You've got Apps Fire today. Uh, and, and this is because finding your way around the App Store and figuring out what apps to use, it can, be a, it can be a big challenge. And that's the challenge that people are faced with. It's even a tougher challenge if you are the creator of an app and you want to get your app there and you want to get it out in front of people, you want to make it easy for them to find, forget using, I mean, forget using iTunes and the app store. That that's, that's tough. This is where apps fire comes into the picture. It's a discovery and promotion service specifically for mobile apps. They create a, a very slick guide, popular guides to the app store and to Android users. It's, it, it's used by millions of users around the world. You can discover the app store in a whole new way. The apps of your friends, the apps of tech celebrities, uh, apps that, that drop in price, all of this stuff, they track it all. Uh, they make it very easy for you as a creator to put your app in front of a really, really good and growing audience. Um, they don't pay users. It's, there's no scam involved. They're not paying people to download it. Users download it if they want. That's it. Simple. Uh, it's just a way to get better quality users faster. So you can get 10% off of this service if you use uh, the code 5 by 5 And uh, apparently they're giving away some free ad campaigns. So so reach out and get in touch. You go to appsfire.com slash 5 by 5 You can even contact them directly. They set up a special email address, 5 by 5 at appsfire.com. So uh, please do go check those guys out. Very cool service. All right. I want to talk a little bit about RAID. RAID. Now, first of all, we should come right out and say RAID is is a backup. 
And all you need to do is have your files on a RAID system and you're fully backed up. Nothing to worry about. Sit back. You smell that, folks? That's sarcasm. (laughs) Wait, wait. RAID isn't backup, John? RAID is not a backup. Oh, come on. But people might not know what RAID is, so... Yeah, redundant array of independent Yeah, It's supposed to be inexpensive, wasn't it? Inexpensive, yeah. But But they changed it. Didn't they change it at one point? Yeah, they probably did because they realized that they're making tons of money selling (laughs) $3,000 hard drives. (laughs) But yes, originally it was was inexpensive disks. The concept is you could take a, a bunch of these cheap disks, throw them together, and you could merge them into one big volume, and that volume might maybe behind the scenes it was just Stripe to make everything a lot faster. Maybe it was Stripe for redundancy. Maybe it was mirroring going on. You could have one drive fail and the others would keep working. And it, it was the holy grail of storage. It still maybe is? Well, no, it definitely isn't anymore. <laughs> Not anymore. But like originally, it was one of the first efforts to formalize the idea of I have so much stuff that either it can't fit on one disk at the current disk sizes or I want more performance. You know, it's a way to scale storage. Say, look, well, I've got one hard drive and it's this fast. Can I get two hard drives and have it be twice as fast? Well, only if you're reading one thing from this one and one thing from that one. It's like, well, I want I want scalable storage. I want to be able to add drives and either get more performance or more redundancy or both. You know, if, if it, and then you get into the situation like where okay, so I'm putting my data on on these five disks or six disks or whatever. If one of the disks fails, do I lose all my data? Well, no. That's they go into the RAID levels, which I'm not going to get into because it's archaic and no one should really need to know RAID levels, but. Uh, there are many different schemes. It's like, well, if you just merely spread the data in five separate pieces across these drives or whatever, yeah, if you lose one disk, everything is gone because one-fifth of your data is gone and, and four-fifths of data is no good to you. Uh, so that would, But you get better performance out of that. And then you could go to mirroring where I'll, I'll get like two drives and everything is on both drives. So if one drive fails, obviously I've still got all my data because it was completely copied. Right? And there are uh, other schemes where they will spread the data across a couple of drives and use one other drive to write something that's derived from all that data such that if you lose one of the drives, you can rederive what must have been on that drive from the, exi- the existing set of drives that's there. So now all of a sudden you have uh, a situation where you, you're spreading your data across multiple drives. You don't completely duplicate the drives. Like you don't need to have double the number of drives you had to have before. And if you lose one disk, you can rebuild what the contents of that disk were. Uh, as you notice, none of these things address in any way the... Uh, data integrity issue like they just assume that the disks when you write the data to this when you read it back later that will be the data uh they they do have the parity thing there but i'll, I'll get to that in a second so uh, i have a link in the show notes to uh, jeff bonwick's blog jeff bonwick is the was the leader of the team that developed zfs at sun what is this thing he was a vice president sun and a senior software architect as he led the team that developed zfs uh, for solaris uh, so I forget what the title of his blog post is, but his thing, he talks about oh, why why ZFS has this thing in uh, as part of its product where you can uh, where you can put data on more than one disk. Isn't that the the domain of the of lo- a logical volume manager? Like, isn't that a layer above the file system? The file system just be concerned with what it does, and it kind of goes through like why they develop this and why they're not just using RAID. So he describes two flaws with uh, one of the popular RAID schemes known as RAID 5. RAID 5 is the one where you have multiple disks and then one disk that's a parity disk. And if you lose one of the disks, you can rebuild its contents. Uh, so the, the key flaw with RAID that uh, he points out, the first one, is something called the, the RAID 5 write hole. Uh, and the basic idea is like whenever you update the data, 
in a what's called a RAID stripe, which is the, the data that's spread across all the disks, you also have to update that parity disk. And that makes sense. The whole point is it's, you know, this is derived from those other pieces that you wrote to the other disks. You have to update them both at the same time. Uh, and the problem is that there's no way to update more than one disk atomically. If you update the first disk, update the second disk, oh, power fell out. Well, when you power comes back on, you're halfway done. And that's bad. And it's not it atomically means it's either all done or not done at all. All right. Um, and the second thing he talks about is a partial stripe write, which is when you're updating some data, but since RAID cuts everything into equal size slices, maybe you're not updating a full one of those slices. Well, at the end of this, you got to update the parity bit that you know that's derived from all those other pieces. So you have to read all the old data, even though if you updated just one little piece of it. And that's a, a big performance hit because if you're just updating one little piece, why do I have to read all this, all its neighbors basically to recompute the uh, the, the parity bit so I can write the, the parity thing back? So there's performance problem and a, a possible data corruption problem. Now, RAID vendors solve these things by with, with hardware solutions. So they put NVRAM in their storage things where they said, oh, even if you pull the plug, NVRAM is it's non-volatile RAM. When you pull the plug on it, it's still there and, and it would sort of journal to the NVRAM and say, that's the wrong term, but it would keep track of what it was doing so that when you, when you put the power back on, it would know, aha, actually, I was in the middle of something. And the data that I was about to write to these three or four disks, I've still got it here, so let me finish that write. And that works because they had some place where you could store the stuff that wasn't a disk, uh, but also didn't disappear when you pulled the plug. Uh, now, as you can imagine, I, the, the one of the few... Early in my career, I actually dealt with RAID a little bit and dealt with storage vendors that sold you a RAID solution with this uh, NVRAM type of thing. And the one problem I can remember ever having with that uh, RAID box that we dealt with, I don't remember the vendor, it might have been NetApp, I don't remember, was that the NVRAM went bad. And so this this thing that's supposed to save us from all these problems <laughs> stopped working correctly. And believe me, that makes your storage go crazy. You're like, what's going on? It says the data is corrupt, the disk checks out, and I did the, the NVRAM was bad. Or a section of the NVRAM was bad. So the solution was to yank out that card and put in a new card with NVRAM. But at that point, a bunch of data had been corrupted already. Uh, so that's not a great solution. So what the ZFS guys did was try to address each one of these problems. They tried to come up with a file system that had a way of atomically updating things. So either all their updates happened or none of them happened. Uh, and they're not the first to do this. NetApp, speaking of them, were one of the, one of the first vendors to popularize this type of thing where the, the problem with being in the middle of doing something and then getting interrupted and not knowing where the heck you are, the solution, the best solution is not to say, okay, we'll always know where we are. We'll just keep track of it in this thing that even if you pull the power out, we'll always be okay, like the NVRAM or something like that. So we'll always know where we are. We'll never, we'll never lose track. Uh, and, but that doesn't work because, you know, look, what if the NVRAM is bad? Or what, you know, it's, you're not protecting yourself. You're just, you're just moving the problem to another place. Because then, for example, when you're writing to the NVRAM, now do you need a system there to make sure all the updates to NVRAM are atomic? And it just, it, you know, you're just chasing your tail at that point. So the system that NetApp uh, and several other vendors used and also ZFS used is don't update data in place. That means if you have a place where some data is and it's changing to something different, don't overwrite the existing thing with the new thing. Because if you die in the middle of that, what you've got is half of the old thing and half of the new thing. And that's bad, right? Even if you know what you were doing, then you got to like, oh, geez, do I have either the old one somewhere in its entirety or the new one somewhere in its, entire, in its entirety? So the old one somewhere in its entirety, you probably don't have. And the new one, well, maybe that's an NVRAM, but, you know, again, you're just moving the problem around. 
So the, pro the, the solution is don't update data in place. When you make a change to some data, do it by writing the new data in a totally different place. And then the only thing you have to do atomically is say when you're all done writing everything to this totally new place that had nothing in it that was totally clean, flip one little thing that says stop looking at the old place and start looking at the new place. And that's much easier to manage, that tiny little flip. Because, you know, if, if you're pointing to the old location, everything is fine. If you're pointing to the new location, uh, everything is fine. And the only way you could be pointing in between is to say, like, oh, I halfway updated the location uh, of where things are pointing. So the, the second solution to that is, uh, since CFS has check, checksums everywhere, is that it will know when it says, okay, where am I looking for this thing? And it'll uh, say it looks at it and says, well, this, this checksum doesn't match because the power went out and the checksum is the old checksum and the data is half the old data and half the new data. So where, where do I go? Where is, I have no idea what to do. All I know is that this pointer to this data is bad because the checksum doesn't match it, but it doesn't know why the checksum doesn't match. And so one of the solutions ZFS uses for that is to redundantly store all of its metadata. Or this is actually an option. It's not all of its metadata, but it can do something called ditto blocks where it says, Metadata is so important, that thing we use to keep track of where everything is, that I want to put this in multiple places on the disk, physically separated from each other, far away, just to try to maximize our chances of having a good copy of all of this data. So it's really a belt and suspenders approach. Don't update data in place. Important data put in multiple places, widely separated, maybe on separate disks, maybe on separate portions of the same disk, uh, so that ideally there's... Uh, the, the the purpose of the design is this, there should be nothing you can do to a properly operating ZFS disk uh, in terms of you know yanking the power or interrupting something in the middle or whatever that ever results in a disk that is not in a consistent state. It may not be in the state you want it. It may be like, well, this write succeeded and this one didn't, but it will always be consistent as far as the file system concerned. The file system will never go somewhere and say, I can't find keep track of where all these blocks are for this file. There's supposed to be 20 blocks and I only know where 10 are. Or I can't tell whether the new version of the old version of this file should be shown. Uh, file system consistency may not seem that interesting from an application level because a perfectly consistent file system can still be filled with garbage data. But as far as I'm concerned, that is the job of the file system to make sure the file system is consistent. So the, the, one of the slogan t-shirts that the ZFS guys had, I should have found a link to this too, but I think it said FSCK space U FSCK is the Unix utility for or sensor file system check mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for crawling over your whole disk and looking at everything. It says this says it should be 10 files. Are there 10 files? This says to be 20 blocks. This file, are there 20 blocks? It says the, the, this, this size of this thing should be this size. If I add up all the blocks, does it equal that size and all, you know, the date for this file looks like it was from the 1800s. That's probably wrong. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Checking the file system means crawling all over it and, and trying to look for inconsistencies. And the idea with ZFS is there is no FSCK command. The, the, the file system is always consistent on disk. Always. Uh, and there's, there should be no possible way that it can't be. because it's, Everything is either in the old state or in the new state, and we can't actually update things atomically because we don't update data in place and because we do all this redundancy stuff. And on top of that, we put checksums with everything so that if the, if the hardware goes bad, that's, we're going to take that on too and say, uh, the file system seems consistent, but some data is wrong. Uh, and ZFS will, will, will actually take it upon itself to say, look, uh, this data is on three is in three different locations on three different disks, but on one of the disks the checksum is bad, and the other two disks the checksum is correct. So it will take the good data off one of the good disks and put it back onto the bad disk, so it can sort of heal itself. 
you know, due to hardware bit flip type of errors. And it will try to write it to a new location so it doesn't write over those same possibly bad bits. Uh, it, it's a file system that's actually taking responsibility for the data that it's storing. And it's saying, um, our job is to make sure I, you know, that my bookkeeping is never all messed up and I have no idea what's going on. So basically, none of those little red error messages in disk utility. No, no, no FSCK to crawl over your whole disk to see if it's okay. It's always okay. And if you have a hardware failure, I'm going to tell you about it. And if I can fix it because I have redundant copies of the data, I will do so. So that's sort of what's exciting about ZFS uh, in a nutshell. I didn't go into ZFS's solution for RAID and, and going across multiple disks. But yes, they have a thing where you can put multiple. But that's be- it's a behind the scenes thing. And it doesn't affect the way that ZFS works from the user or the developer standpoint. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's esoteric, like debating, you know, is it easier to resize volumes in RAID versus some of the other solutions? And NetApp, NetApp has a similar type of file system called Waffle. Uh, I don't know what they call it now, but that was the original name. It was a write anywhere file layout or log structured file systems. Those are the ones where they say we don't update in place. We always put data in, in new locations. And there are all sorts of uh, performance consequences of this. But uh, basically, that's the, the pitch for, for ZFS and for a lot of modern file systems. Uh, BTRFS. I don't even know how that's if that's how you pronounce that, but BTRFS is a similar type of file system in the open source space. Uh, like I said, NetApp has its own file systems that it's. I think it's still suing Sun and now Oracle over the patents involved in that. Uh, but way back in the corner is Perl DHFS Plus that has none of this. That updates all its data in place. That has all these sorts of weird design decisions that made sense when we were on floppy disks and, and ten megabyte hard drives, but make no sense now. And it's had many things added to it to try to allow it to support the features of a modern Unix, you know, hard links, sim links. Uh, uh, Unicode wasn't grafted on, but the implementation of Unicode has come under uh, scrutiny from uh, uh, from Linus Torvalds in particular, if you want to read about how he hates HFS Plus because of the way it does Unicode normalization or what Unicode normalization is, you can Google that. Uh, but it doesn't have any of these things about protecting your data or our, uh, logical volume management or uh, uh, not corrupting itself, or all that stuff. So the world has moved on, but HFS Plus has not. So for years and years, I've been saying, look, Apple, you got to do something about the file system. Every other file system that's out there is better in one or more important regards than HFS Plus. Don't keep adding things to HFS Plus. That's not the way to do it. You're, you're sacrificing performance and features, and, and don't you feel like you have to take responsibility for the data that's on the disk? And I didn't really care what it was. They write their own file system. If they adopt ZFS, they adopt BTRFS, they, anything, you know, just don't keep it around forever. Uh, and ZFS, the, the, the move to ZFS looked like it was going to be that, but that kind of fell through. So I was like, all right, well, what's, what's your new plan? And so far, no new plan. But in Lion, they introduced something called core storage, which is Apple's crack at logical volume management. And they did that because they had to do it to support the new whole disk encryption thing. And I speculated in the Lion review that perhaps core storage could be laying the foundation for a new file system from Apple that would be uh, that would use some of that work uh, and that would go some way towards addressing some of the concerns with uh, with HFS Plus. But that's all just speculation, and I don't know if that's going to happen. Uh, and I still have not checked. I'm, I'm assuming Mountain Lion continues to use HFS Plus, but I literally have not checked, so I can not violate my NDA in saying I don't know if it does. Uh, but I will be very surprised if it doesn't because that seems like something I would have heard about in blogs uh, many times over. Now, all this wraps all the way around, believe it or not, to Microsoft. Didn't see that one coming, did you? No, I would, I'm, I'm just because shocked this, that you would go there. 
this is the reason this is even in my show notes. We got interrupted by Mountain Lion in the show I missed and all that other stuff. Because uh, Microsoft made an announcement of something they called they call ReFS. Capital R, lowercase e, capital FS. Uh, which stands for Resilient File System. And so uh, Microsoft has a similarly checkered history of file system stuff. They were supposed to come out with WinFS, which really wasn't a file system, but was supposed to have a lot of the features of logical volume management and, and searching for data and metadata and all sorts of stuff. But like, no, there was confusion about that. Really, it's not a file system. It's just a layer on top of our existing file system. But then they got canceled as part of the Longhorn Vista mess. Uh, so for many years, Microsoft has been using a NTFS, which is the file system developed for Windows NT, which is not a terrible file system. Uh, it certainly started out its life much more advanced than Apple's file systems, and it's mostly uh, still more advanced than HFS Plus, has better performance characteristics. There's some weird things about it. It's certainly not of the vintage of ZFS or uh, any of the uh, other more modern file systems, but it, it's the world's better than FAT or FAT32. Uh, but uh, at any rate, that's, <laughs> that's what Microsoft is, is uh, using these days. And Microsoft, true to form, is usually pretty good about seeing where it has a technical failing and addressing it. So, for example... They saw when Java was introduced and, and uh, memory managed languages were coming out that having a platform that's entirely based on C and C++ is kind of, uh, it, it might be seen as uh, not keeping up with the time. So in response to that, they made the uh, .NET platform and their common language runtime and the C-sharp language. And, you know, they saw a place where they were falling behind technically and they addressed it in a big, long, multi-year plan that took a long time to execute and Arguably, they did a bad job in certain aspects of it, but the point is they're they're reacting to to trends and trying to keep up. So here they are looking at their file system and saying, NTFS, it's not bad, but the world of file systems has moved on. We need something better. And so ReFS is their thing. Uh, it's going to be introduced as part of Windows Server 8, according to Microsoft, and this is the way Microsoft does all its introductions. It tends to release the file system on the server platform first because like those are the guys who are interested in file systems, and they can kind of test it out there before it comes down to the consumers like, I don't remember when NTFS, you might know this as, a, as an ex-Windows nerd, but oh. <laughs> and NTFS started in NT and Windows was stuck with fat for the longest time. And it yeah. was it Windows 2000 when NTFS became the default? Yeah, I think you're right about that. That sounds right to me. Uh, as far as being the default, or do you mean something that you could use? Oh, I know that I know for sure that it was in Windows 2000 and of course XP and everything after that and that it, it superseded fat, but I'm trying to remember when that actually happened um and they actually started good. calling it like ntfs version 5 back in the 2000 time period they did they a pretty good job though because like if you bought windows like you ideally you wouldn't even know that like the next pc you bought had ntfs on yeah. right like it wouldn't be an issue and like when you reinstall windows i, I don't know if they had a cross converter that said it you look like you have a fat 32 bis you want us to convert to, you I don't could know, convert you definitely could convert yeah, I'm, I'm, Apple tried to do that too, by the way. I don't know. You weren't perhaps, well, maybe. Do you remember that when HFS Plus superseded yeah, HFS? Sure and you, could, you could convert your HFS Plus, your HFS disk to HFS Plus. I mean, I started using Macs back in the mid 80s. So it there was never a time when I didn't have one. But yeah, I remember when you could convert it and it was a very, it was a very serious decision that you <laughs> yeah. had to make. It was, it well, was r- the real deal. And since HFS, like HFS Plus, was prone to corrupt its metadata structures, that conversion process could totally destroy all yeah, your data. Yeah, it was a severe, had to have really good backups. Yeah, right. I mean, it was like, oh, I'll just, I'll just update my file system volume format in place. And what could go wrong? 
All right, yeah. here's, here's what it says. Uh, Microsoft released version 3 of NTFS, sometimes incorrectly called NTFS 5, in relation to the kernel version number as part of Windows 2000. This introduced disk quotas provided by Quota Advisor, file system level encryption, sparse files, and reparse points. Sparse files allow for the efficient storage of data sets, etc. Um, so yeah, this is, this is when... It was introduced into 2000, and I think, weren't there also some, maybe you already talked about this a little bit, I'm, I'm trying to remember what the file system size limits were, remember how you used to have those, and with oh, fat? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, fat, I don't, I don't know what the limits are on Windows, but yeah, there was some very low limits on, on disk size, the di- disks were quickly outpacing how large a, uh, a volume could be in fat, and then fat32 extended that, but you were still bumping up against the limits, NTFS. Even NTFS might have had its limits bumped a few times. That's just something that all file systems tend to have. Because when you design a file system, you're like, okay, and then this is where I'm going to store the maximum number of whatevers. And then whatevers can each point to a certain number of whatevers. And those whatever, you know, you eventually add it up and you say, okay, given that I use 16 bits for this value or 32 bits for this value on disk, and I multiply that out, what is the maximum maximum file size, maximum volume size. You, you make decisions when you're storing stuff on disk, and those decisions have repercussions in the uh, the, the c- capacity of your file system. And as you can imagine, people who made those decisions in 1981 or whatever were like, oh, let's just use 16 bits for this because right. every, every, <laughs> every, every byte counted. And yeah. maybe you had 16-bit registers on your CPU and it just worked out well, uh, you know, or, or even 32-bits. Like, oh, our insert 32-bits were on 486s now. Let's just use 32-bits. It works nice. And if we use something longer, then you got to chop it up and it's just a pain in my butt and i'm not going to do that uh and by the way i'll put i found a neat little article on this i'll put in the show notes we want to mention how to get to the show notes you go to five by five tv slash hypercritical slash 56 and you'll see all of the links that that we have uh we've mentioned and all the things that uh, john's painstakingly adds to the show uh they're all there you can subscribe to those in an rss reader by the way and you can follow along at home that way. And uh, thanks very much to helpspot.com, uh, the best help desk software in the business there, the sponsoring show notes. So, yeah, but there's a neat little article. Now, did, did you ever, were you ever a, a user of Windows 2000 or NT? Define user. Uh, had one on your desk that you had to work on, whether I, you were I, happy about it I or not. Frequently had uh, a Windows VM of some kind to uh, do browser testing and IE on, on Windows, but I've never actually used one as my main machine. But yes, I've interacted with <laughs> Windows 2000, NT. Uh, there was a great, five. I don't know if you ever remember this feature. It's not so much a file system feature, uh, but it was something that was supported that you could you could compress individual folders, not zip them, but yeah. you, could, you could compress them so that anything that you put in that folder would be automatically uh, compressed in that directory so that you could, so you could say, well, just, just compress this directory and none of these other ones. And it didn't seem to impact performance too much. Yeah. That's something that actually Apple added to HRS plus speaking of, and something of the ZFS supports as well as, uh, you know, encryption and, and compression of using several different algorithms. That's, that's another modern file system feature that, for example, fat didn't have and HFS plus didn't have it uh, for a long time. And they just recently added. Can you currently do that on Mac OS 10? Can you compress just one folder? I don't know if the mechanism for m- triggering the compression is accessible in a nice way, but to compress a folder, what you'd basically do is compress all the files in it, and all the files that, the, that those folders contain, you know, on the way down. So there's not, you know, the idea of compressing a folder is basically just compress the folder's contents. Uh, 
and tons of stuff is compressed on your disk right now if you're using uh, a lion or a snow leopard which i think is where this feature is introduced hfs plus does support transparent encryption it's just that it's not there's no right click where you can like yeah. in windows where you could say compress it it's they tend to compress uh stuff that's only going to be read like the applications or parts of the operating system and uh i think in if you look at my my uh I'm getting confused about say snow line snow leopard review. You can find uh, some uh, links to some tools that will let you see which files are compressed or not. Uh, but what good that information does you, I'm not sure because it's like, well, can I decompress it? Not easily. There's no real UI for that. Can I compress this file? Not really. You know, it's clearly a feature that Apple's using to optimize its its operating system, but it's not user accessible. So, getting back to ReFS, these are all things we talked about that NTFS, you know had that fat didn't have but even ntfs microsoft felt like was behind because it doesn't do all those fancy things that i talked about zfs doing so i linked to microsoft's uh, explanation of refs on uh, an msdm page which is very good uh and uh, i just highlighted a few sections of it here uh, the key goals of of refs so the first goal is they want it to look like ntfs to the software which is typical microsoft fashion they like backward compatibility so your software should have no idea that it's operating on ReFS. They're trying to maintain all the features that NTFS supports, all the APIs that NTFS supports, like all the file system APIs. This probably, this, I read this a few times, I'm like, what are they even talking about? But I realized if you're not in a Unix mindset, it kind of makes sense. In a Unix mindset, you're like, why would a new file system change the APIs that it use? Like, I use, I use open, you know, and, or fopen or whatever, and read. And it's like, that we're kind of used to, in Unix, there's one set of file I.O. operations and APIs that works with all file systems, and it's up to the file system driver to abstract that stuff out. But apparently in the world of Windows, and I'm sure in the world of Mac, too, there's certain APIs that are specific to certain file systems. So uh, Microsoft is being very explicit here and saying, look, the exact same APIs that you use to interact with your NTFS disk now, those exact APIs will work with ReFS. So that's very important to them. They don't want to break backward compatibility. They want it to look just like an NTFS disk. Uh, but that's boring. So the first key goal that's not boring is verify and autocorrect data. That should sound very familiar, right? They want to be able to tell that if the data is correct. They write it, and then six months later, you should be able to look at it and say, uh, these, the checksum doesn't match, the data is bad. And autocorrect means the, the type of thing that we were talking about ZFS, where it's like, all right, this data is bad. Do we have another copy of this data somewhere? And the checksum does match on that one? Well, then let's put that data back over here, and now they're both good again. Uh, one of the things I bolted out here is metadata must not be written in place. Also sounds familiar. Don't do you know what they call torn writes, where you're halfway through overriding something and you just end up with garbage. Uh, here's an interesting one, which is kind of a dig at ZFS. Don't assume that disk checking algorithms in well, this is not a dig. Little digs come later. Don't assume that disk checking algorithms in particular can scale to the size of an entire file system. Uh, I think that's saying you're not going to be able to FSCK a four terabyte disk in a couple of, like you know how long it takes to check every single byte on a, on a disk to make sure that the structures are consistent it's kind of ridiculous uh never take the file system offline this is a very interesting one that i don't think even zfs says uh, is they want to keep the entire file system online when things are going wrong without having to take anything offline and provide end-to-end resiliency blah 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 so it's it reads almost like a feature list from zfs like all that stuff that zfs has talked about we're going to do our version of it and presumably we'll do it better or in a more interesting manner or we will learn the lessons of of zfs uh and then so they have a separate section for key features because those are the goals i kind of started talking about the features but their their features are 
they list here are metadata integrity with checksums. So they're just talking about the thing that keeps track of where your stuff is. They're not talking about the data itself. Then they say integrity streams providing optional user data integrity. So they've separated those things out. They say metadata integrity will make sure everything is consistent on disk. So we have to protect our metadata. Our metadata is our bookkeeping of where stuff is. And that we will check some the hell out of so that we can tell if that's messed up. Because if that's messed up, all bets are off. We could be reading in the wrong place. We could lose track of files. We'll check something out all the time. But they're hedging their bets on data integrity. They're going to say, okay, well, that's optional. The actual contents of your file, we can check some of those for you, or we can not. And why would you not want to? This is one of the complaints against ZFS is that if you check some, every single piece of data, that means you have to make a computation for every little piece of data you put on disk. And every time you read it from disk, you have to redo that computation and compare it with a checksum, which you also have to read from the disk and make sure they're correct. And so it's, it's potentially CPU intensive if you're using massive amounts of I.O. ZFS struggled to convince everyone that CPUs are so fast now with multi-core. Uh, it's not a problem. And if it, you know, it does take some CPU capacity, but what would you rather use your CPU stuff for? I, I'm surprised they had such a hard time arguing this because to my mind, it's kind of like the, uh, the speed versus correctness thing. It's like, well, wouldn't it be much faster if we didn't do those checksums? Like, yeah, but then maybe your data isn't correct. So what do you want? Correctness or speed? And in programming, speed without correctness is pointless. I can make you an infinitely fast program that's incorrect because it just immediately exits. Right. Correctness has got to be number one. So the, the ZFS mindset is correctness above all, checksums on everything. That's the way it has to be. Microsoft is still hedging its bets, saying we know that some of you may not be ready to sacrifice your CPU cores for the sake of data integrity. Uh, and we will leave that up to you. If you don't care if you're, you know, maybe it's just scratch data and you don't care if it's corrupt. And if it's corrupt, you'll just wipe the whole disk because it's just a cache and a CDN or something. So they're trying to be flexible here. Metadata integrity, always data integrity sometimes. Uh, allocate on write transactional model for robust disk updates. That's jargon for the transactional disk updates. But you don't overwrite existing data, you write it in a new place, and either it's all written or it's not written. Storage pooling and virtualization. Microsoft has another thing called storage spaces that they introduced uh, a little bit before ReFS was announced. That's their layer for virtualizing storage, having multiple disks look like a single logical volume. Uh, Disk scrubbing for protecting protecting against latent disk errors. Disk scrubbing is the type of thing where like every once in a while, why don't you check all those checksums that we told you to put in the data? At? Because if you know if you don't have occasion to ever read that data, you won't know it's bad. So maybe just check it, see if it's good, and if it's bad, get a good copy from somewhere. Uh, so this looks pretty good compared to the feature set of ZFS. Uh, it's kind of like how in my mind I see that like how does C sharp stack up against Java and how does ReFS stack up against ZFS? Java and ZFS were the first ones, also both incidentally from Sun, interestingly, and Microsoft gets the benefit of waiting and seeing how that shakes out. So ZFS and Java like do their thing, and then Microsoft says, "Well, what do people not like about Java? What do people not like about ZFS? How can we do it better? We're going to do our own thing, and they're making some big advances there, but how can we do it better?" Uh, and so they've made some slightly different decisions and their implementation decisions are different. And of course, making it compatible with NTFS and using all those APIs. Uh, my understanding is they're actually using the top layer API literally as is with all of its timings. And they, they made a big point of like, you know, for multi-threaded programming stuff in terms of the timings of, you know, the code paths through the storage stack. They want that to be exactly the same as it is in NTFS and only they'll chop off only the back end when you're writing to the actual storage. So everything from the application perspective should be bug for bug compatible with uh, with the NTFS storage layer. Uh, compared to ZFS, I was trying to think of how, is there anything they're missing? 
Ditto blocks, they kind of have that in storage spaces where you can put data on multiple disks, but Ditto blocks is at a block level where you can just say, make three copies of this on a disk because it's really important, this type of metadata or whatever. Uh, ZFS is really good about putting important metadata in multiple locations and protecting itself. And there's nothing really equivalent to ZFS's solution to RAID, which it calls RAID-Z, and there's RAID-Z and RAID-Z2. It's uh, a different way of arranging stuff in multiple disks. But again, storage spaces. Microsoft is is going more to the model where their logical volume manager is a separate layer from their file system. Whereas ZFS combines them into one because I think there are advantages to doing so. And I think there are advantages to doing so, but people don't like that, uh, that, that layering. And I think Microsoft, people at Microsoft obviously didn't like that layering too much either. Um, let's see what else we've got on ReFS. Why don't we do our second sponsor while you, you do re- your last-minute research? Okay. It's MailChimp.com. Longtime sponsor, and I love these guys. Use the heck out of these guys. The easy email newsletters. That's the, the easy way to think of it. You want to do a newsletter, you do MailChimp.com. That's it. You go there, you sign up, you send 12,000 emails to 2,000 people. You do that every month, and you pay nothing. Sounds pretty cool, right? You want integrated into your, uh, in, into your iOS app? They give you all the code you need to just do that. Same thing for Android apps. They also have their own mobile apps so that if you're on the go, you want to see your people reading the newsletters, people uh, following along with the campaign, they've got really, really awesome. It's called MailChimp Mobile. Again, all of this is free. They've got integration with stuff like Wufu if you use them for forums. They've got integration with SurveyMonkey if you want people to do surveys. Uh, they just put up some really cool new videos uh, just in the last couple of days showing how MailChimp works, how easy it is to use. They've got guides for everything, breaking down every single topic, everything you want to do and make with MailChimp. They just make it easy to do that. Uh, so it, it, it's really, really cool. They've got tons of resources. And yeah, if you, if you ramp things up, you, you have more than 2,000 subscribers, you get to pay. But it's not expensive. They keep it really, really cheap. Uh, I mean, you know, you're talking about like like 10 bucks a month and up. So check it out. MailChimp.com. Great guys. Great supporters of 5x5. And uh, if you need to do anything with newsletters, this is, this is the place to go. You all right with that? I was making sure I wasn't muted. Okay. Someone in the chat room uh, posted a link to uh, an entry from uh, Bonwick's blog called uh, Rampant Layering Violation. Hmm. Uh, Andrew Morton, uh, someone in the Linux community, a big wig in the Linux community, made a complaint to when ZFS was first being uh, paraded around the tech scene that it was a, viol- a layering violation, that you're supposed to have the file system, which just manages you know a single volume, and then you have logical volume management, which manages multiple volumes. That, and putting it together into one big ball of mud was bad. You're supposed to have separate layers, and then you can change the layers independently to get the best logical volume manager with the best file system. And uh, not surprisingly, uh, Jeff Bonwick's response was that we think that uh, combining them has advantages, and uh, they go, he goes into that in the post. In fact, I'll add the show notes link now. And I actually did a blog post about that, too, called Rampant Layering Syndrome, which was a very short little thing that basically said, but, you know, so these ZFS guys come along and address tons of longstanding problems in storage all at once in this, in this you know, very technically interesting solution. And all you can yell them at is the fact that they're violating some sort of layering. And I, I took it as a, a microcosm of the Linux, the Linux world at the time. This was, when was it? Four years ago. Uh, 
2007-ish. That uh, in Linux, like everyone has their own turf and like the file system guys do that and the device driver guys do that and they all want to defend their turf and you all have to have separate layers and it makes it so that no one is ever thinking about the whole experience. It's very different from the Apple thing where they're like, I don't care how disgusting it is. The whole experience has got to be awesome from top to bottom. And if you have to do some hideous, ugly stuff in the middle, I don't care. They, Apple would much rather have that than a product that's mediocre, but say, oh boy, these layers are so clean and we have a division of responsibility and we, the layers are changeable independently. And they say, I don't care. How good is the finished product? Uh, so I was that got my uh, goat a little bit four years ago and still bothers me a little bit. But you know, you can see the point about ZFS and Microsoft uh, has addressed that with their separate storage spaces. So they've made their decision. On there. So I put, I put those both in the show notes. Uh, a few more things on ReFS, uh, a few more details on this. Uh, they go into, they have a description of how they didn't check some, and they should have just copied and pasted from the ZFS pages because it's so similar to the way they do it. But some more interesting things they do, people might be wondering, what is it that makes the file system uh, you know, interesting or good? When it comes time to write out all these little pieces of information, what you usually want to do is to keep related information close to each other. This especially is true in the days of disks when you had a little disk arm that was moving back and forth across the platter. Every time you move that arm, it's a huge hit in, term, uh, in terms of speed. So you want to just only move to one location and read all your stuff. So ReFS, you know, does what most good file systems do is it tries to find a way to, for very small files or for things related to a file, put everything all in one place. So that you just make it to get one read and you can get all the information about the file all the metadata, all the checksums, and just suck them all in in one nice little stream. Uh, this is another example of a place where HFS Plus does a terrible, terrible job. Uh, they had the uh, the catalog file. I think I talked about this in my article, but the catalog file is the place where the HFS Plus keeps track of everything, and there's one of them, and it's for the entire disk. So anytime you want to get any information about any file, you got to go to the catalog file and read it. Oh, and by the way, if you want the data from that file, you should go get it elsewhere. I think they later on started doing some stuff where they try to inline stuff into the catalog file. But in general, that's a non-modern file system design. Modern file systems do not want to have a central repository for information that they always have to go to that central place and then go someplace else to get the data. So ReFS is uh, cognizant of that, as, as is NTFS. Uh, and the integrity streams thing, they're actually doing that on a per-file basis, as they imagine that this is similar to how they implemented the compression thing. Is that for an individual file... The, the programmer can just pass a different flag to their, you know, a file I.O. calls and say, oh, this file is going to be, uh, you know, going to be checksum, uh, have the data checksum. So that seems like it's something, at the very least, it's very easily accessible to the programmer and probably, I assume, will be exposed in some fashion through the UI, considering how they expose the, uh, the compression stuff with NTFS. Uh, so finally, we'll circle back to the Mac. Uh, and this kind of all came to the head with the ReFS announcement and also with the announcement of Zevo, Z-E-V-O, from Tins Complement. Uh, that is a company started by, God, am I getting his name wrong? Don Brady? See, these are things I should have in the show notes, but don't. Uh, some, an ex-Apple engineer who spent 20 years at Apple working on HFS and HFS Plus and uh, was apparently very disappointed when Apple decided not to go with ZFS as the new file system for the Mac. I'm guessing he was disappointed uh, because what he did was he left Apple and started his own company to bring ZFS to the Mac. So you don't get much more disappointed than that. He's got on on the the uh, the website. It's tenscompliment.com. He's got uh, a picture uh, in the first section below the giant banner. It says out with the old and it shows a picture of a 3.5 inch floppy disk with the words with the letters HFS 1986 written on it. 
and you know it's like oh well, he, he shouldn't be bashing on hfs those people did a good work he was probably one of the ones who did that work so it's kind of okay for him to say look hfs and hfs plus were cool i was there when we made them i was proud of them at the time but the world has moved on and i really think the mac needs uh, a better file system and we almost ported ZFS to the Mac. We got it kind of working, sort of mostly, but then Apple abandoned in that project. So he's going to make a commercial product, which apparently he can do given the, the license that Sun certainly has, that you can buy for the Mac that will give you uh, ZFS. And there's also the Mac ZFS project, which is an open source project that has a Google code page that's been ongoing for a long time, which is, hey, Apple doesn't seem like they're interested in this project. They've dropped it. It's not supported anymore. Let's pick up the source. That's the magic of open source, and we'll continue this project. So... Zevo is a commercial product supported by a company. Uh, it's got a pretty good pedigree behind it in terms of if anyone is going to understand the intricacies of the Mac OS X file system driver structure, it's going to be the guy who worked at Apple for 20 years working on that stuff. Right. So he's got a good shot of doing a good job and his team. And then Mac ZFS is the typical open source thing. It's like anyone who wants to contribute, you know, it's a free product. You get what you pay for. Uh, so these two things are kind of in competition with each other. Uh, and many people have been asking, hey, aren't you excited about that? Uh, about this, this Zevo thing? ZFS finally coming to Mac. Isn't this awesome? I totally applaud the idea that, you know, if Apple seems to have its head up its butt about file systems and you're the file system guy, leave the company, start your own company and sell a file system for the Mac. It's open source. Apple can't stop you. You know what I mean? Uh, that's great. And in the open source thing, it if they want to hack away at it and get it to work, that's great for them too. Although I think they have slightly uh, a deficit of knowledge compared to Zevo, if only because I suspect there aren't many 20-year Apple file system veterans working on Mac ZFS. Uh, but in both cases, I'm kind of sad because a file system is, especially a file system like ZFS, which sort of reaches through the I.O. stack much more than most other file systems because of you know that violation of the layering that people always complain about. Really, I would like to come from the OS vendor. And I get a really kind of nervous about file systems that aren't made by the OS vendor. Not through any fault of the people making the file systems, but just because Apple feels no responsibility to make sure they don't break the work of these people. So if Apple changes their operating system and, and the Zevo ZFS things break, Apple doesn't shed a tear over that. And if you complain, you say, hey, you know, I upgraded to to Mountain Lion and I can't read my disk or something's messed up. Or they're going to say, well, all right, let's see what's your problem. It's like, oh, you're using some sort of third party product. Well, that's not our problem. That's a third party's problem. And they're kind of right. Like the OS vendor is only supposed to support the volume formats that it supports. And if you have some sort of problem, then you have to go to the third party. But you know how good Apple is about keeping third parties in the loop on things. It's totally conceivable that Apple could release an update to an operating system without mm -hmm. giving third parties either enough time or sometimes any time to see whether their things work or not. Like, they say, okay, well, Zevo was working perfectly fine in the last developer seed of this thing, but when the final version came out, we didn't get a chance to look at it, and it was released to customers, and it broke all their stuff. So it's really dangerous to be relying on a third party for your file system needs, not through any fault of the third party, but just because Apple is so bad at, you know, helping third party longs in that way. Apple's position is probably we don't think you should use these third-party products. We have storage products. We have our own file system. That's what we support. You should use that. Uh, I don't think Apple's going to go out of a way to be malicious and break stuff, but they're sure as heck not going to care if they break it. And file systems like ZFS, I really want to be integrated by the platform owner because I want disk utility to work with it. I want it to be integrated with 
every part of the, of the operating system. I want all of Apple's applications to be run and checked on ZFS. It really just has to, it's not, that's talking about outsourcing your core competency. You, the, the platform vendor has to support a file system soup to nuts, backups, time machine, everything head to tail so that, you know, you're completely sure that it'll work before I would say you should trust this thing with all of your data. People are asking in the chat room if I have tried it. I have not. No, Why have not I not tried it? it? Why have I not tried it? Because I'm nervous. I'm, I'm a, I'm it's a scary. nervous nerd. It's scary. Yeah. Now, here's where, here's where Zevo is going to find an audience. If you have a whole bunch of disks that you want to... First of all, I don't think you can even boot from it yet. So it's obviously out of, out of the realm of possibility or interest for most people because most people just have one disk and maybe a time machine disk. Uh, it's out of the question. You can't boot from it. Um, but if you have a whole bunch of disks that you want to like store a bunch of stuff on, like you have a home NAS or you have a little Mac Mini attached to and you want to make a home NAS type of thing, that's where I would start looking into this because then you're like, well, if I'm going to build my own Drobo type of thing, right? Uh, and that's something I want to do because I can do it much more cheaply in a drawer because I have this old Mac Mini hanging around and I can just attach a bunch of these drives off of it with FireWire. What can I do with these, you know, three or four drives attached with FireWire to a Mac Mini? Well, if you use Apple and HFS Plus, you can use their software grade, which is terrible. The hardware rate is out of the question. You could buy a Drobo box, but those cost a lot of money on top of the disks you have to do. It's like, I've just got the disks and I've got a Mac Mini. What can I do? Zevo is the answer there. You can sick it at those disks Combine them together one big storage pool, and you'll have all the benefits of ZFS with the you know checksumming and the redundancy and and atomic updates and all that good stuff. And if you just use it to store like like a home video server or something, and you back it up using some other mechanism, or, you know, or you back it up using another one of those things, then you're good to go. Uh, it's just a shame that you know I, I want that checksumming and all that stuff and all the performance uh, benefits and stuff. To be for my main disk, for the one that has my operating system on it, for the one that has my applications on it, the one that has my iPhoto library. But at this point, I, you know, I don't think, for me personally anyway, Zevo is not the solution to that. Maybe Apple will buy Zevo and fold them back in and, and operate it, but I really, Does that really, seem likely really, to you? I don't know. Well, see, this, this gets to the root of this thing. So... I did all this complaining. We talked about all the file systems. We talked about how they didn't get ZFS, uh, ZFS and we talked about how Microsoft uh, has decided to up its file system game with ReFS. What's, what's Apple's move? What are they doing? That's, that's the big question. And the answer seems so far has been nothing. Everything's fine, more or less. We'll add features to HFS Plus when we need to. We need compression. We need to add a logical volume manager so we can do a whole disk encryption. Well, we need to do stuff. We'll do it. But AFS Plus is fine, more or less. And I don't, that's an answer I don't like. But so how long does that go on? 10 years, 20 years, 50 years? Am I going to die in the default uh, file system for Macs, assuming Macs are still around? Is HFS Plus? Yeah. The, the world has moved on so far since, you know, from between the time HFS Plus was introduced and now. Everyone else is moving on. Everyone else is doing something different. Even Microsoft is doing something different. Google's got its own file system in the data center. Certainly, it's not using like fat disks or anything like that. It's got GFS going on over there. This is something that Apple needs to address. And so far, they haven't. So this is the great mystery of of Apple. Why why don't they address the file system thing? Clearly, they think there's something to be addressed because they did that whole ZFS fiasco, right? You don't do that just for your health. Like they thought that HFS Plus 
should be replaced with something better. And they had this big debate about what the better thing should be, and they kind of picked ZFS, and then it fell through. Well, don't they still think exactly that? That HFS Plus needs to be replaced? Like, it, And, you know, if anything, I think the people who are working on HFS Plus at Apple would be the most vocal about the fact that, geez, we can't keep bolting crap to this thing. Like, you, if you worked on any piece of software for a long period of time, you know, you can improve it and you can refactor it, but the fundamental design decisions of HFS Plus are not appropriate for the current age. Having a central catalog file, single-threaded access, these are things I talked about in the line article, but we didn't even mention that, single-threaded access. Only one only one uh, process can be accessing the file system at once. Doesn't that sound like something for the modern era of 16-core CPUs? No. Does that sound like the the ideal <laughs> implementation of a, a disk made up of multiple spindles, a, a volume made up of multiple disks? It's it's archaic. So Apple needs to do something. And I don't at this point, and at previous points, I don't really care what that thing is, but please just do something. But make a new file system yourself. Adopt BTRFS. Adopt ZFS. Buy Zevo. So when you're talking about what is the possibility of them buying out Zevo, maybe the things that it, it all depends on what it is that made them not go with ZFS. It's not like it's not like Apple's forthcoming in that regard. They took it off of their web page and they said, "Yeah, we're not doing that." And there was no big long heart to heart about why they why they made that decision. So everyone's speculating. But if it was because of licensing uh, with with Oracle or Sun. Or if it was because of legal concerns with NetApp, I think all that stuff still applies because the licensing issue hasn't changed as far as I know. And the legal thing is still pending. So if that's what scared them away, that will continue to scare them away. They're, they're not going to buy Zevo. Zevo. But if those are tense compliment, rather. But if that if that stuff is not applicable, if it's been resolved or it wasn't the reason in the first place or whatever, and those Zevo guys do a bang up job and, uh, you know, that that would be an ideal acquisition because uh, otherwise... What are you going to do, Apple? We don't want to buy Zevo. We don't want to do ZFS. Well, what do you want to do? Like, you got to do something eventually. That's why I think it's got to come to a head. I keep saying this, like I say, with the, with the Copeland 2010 business about you got to do something about your language eventually. And so they keep just tacking stuff onto Objective-C. Well, you got to do something about your file system eventually, and they keep tacking stuff onto HFS+. Plus. It's going to come to a head. And, and unlike the Copeland 2010 stuff, it is much easier to change your default file system or add support for a new file system and slowly transition everybody is, uh, than it is to change your language or API. Uh, it, it seems easier to me. Uh, not that I'm saying it's, it's easy. It's, it's going to be hard and you have to do it carefully, but they've done it at least twice before, three times. They went from MFS to HFS. They went from HFS to HFS Plus. And arguably, they went from HFS Plus to 8 billion variants of HFS Plus with journaling, with transparent encryption, and then core storage. So if Apple has a plan, they're not saying, but I, they definitely need to do something. I think that's all I've got on file systems. Unless you think there's something I missed. Like what? I don't know. I think that's it. It's a lot. Yeah. It's it's a, one of the eternal mysteries of Apple. You know, people talk about, oh, they made the phone, they made a tablet. Uh, Macs are on Intel. Like, what's you know, what's the mystery? I guess you got the TV still thing still going, but they kind of you know, people still say that's the mystery. But they did Apple TV one, and they did Apple TV two, and we're still saying, oh, what's they can do for TV? They did two things already. So this may be one of the remaining mysteries of Apple. Well, what are you going to do about the file system? Apple? It's kind of a boring mystery that no one is really interested in, but I am. And the answer is, we don't know. I mean, but isn't isn't the whole goal inevitably to Take the the concept, the entire concept of the file system off the plate for users so that we don't, 
you know, I, I mean, this is a, it's always silly to go back to make a car analogy, but but it, it sometimes it works. Most people, you you probably know exactly what kind of engine you have in your car, and whether it's you know an older one that's carbureted or fuel injected. You know all the probably things. You know how many horsepower, everything else. Car aficionados, people who are into that, mechanics, people who who like cars and get into it, they know all of those details, and. That's fine, but there are a whole lot of people out there who don't know what kind of engine, or if if their car even has an engine. They know they turn the key, and they know how to operate the vehicle, and sometimes if it makes noise or doesn't start, they somebody else comes out and fixes it, takes it away, and they pay money, and it comes back, and it works again. The fact that they know that there's an engine in there, they know that because they've read that, they've been told that when they turn the key, the car makes noise, they put gas, they understand the concept of it. But you could say, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be a beneficial thing at some point if maybe this is 50 or 1,000 years down the road, who knows, but that at some point we'll have a vehicle, it won't make any sound, it won't have any emissions, you'll just push a button, you'll say where you want to go, and you'll go there. The thing will take you there. You won't know how it works, and it won't be important to know how it works. Sure, some people will know how it works, but the general people, they'll have no idea. Most people don't know how electricity gets into their into the socket and they plug their computer into. They just know that there's there's power in there somehow. It's You're just stretching. in there. You're stretching your analogy too far. Well, but I, I liked where you were going with the car. We'll take analogy. a step back and we'll say that shouldn't Apple's goal be to give you, to to take the word file system out of our vocabulary and just know that there are these things that you make and they're they're in this place and wherever you are you can get to them and have them. I mean that's the goal, right? That's what Apple wants to do. So take away the file system, you know, thinking of iCloud as the place where everything lives. I don't even know how the data got on this device or this computer or where I created it. It's irrelevant. I can access it here on this device I happen to be in front of right now. I'll get all the stuff that I want right here. I make a change. It's everywhere. And I, is there a file system? Oh, I don't know. My iOS device just died, but I don't have to worry about the contents of the things on that iOS device because they're in that place, the magical place where all of my data lives. And all, all these devices and computers and things are simply just a portal. I don't know how it works. I don't care how it works. I don't know if there's ZFS, if there's RAID. I don't know who Zevo is or what kind of music he plays. It's irrelevant. All I all I know is that I my data is in this magical place and I can get to it wherever I am with any device I have. That's the Apple vision, right? So I think you're bringing up a good point that I should have had in my notes, which is whenever I talk about file systems, somebody, usually someone kind of nerdy, uh, either wants to talk about or thinks I'm talking about the idea that you of uh, the, the what would you call it the conceptual structure uh, created by the file system that it's, it's at the top level, you know, like it just Unix thing starts at slash and there's a bunch of folders and inside those is other stuff, other files and other folders. And it's a big tree of stuff. And to locate anything, you have to know where it is in this big hierarchy and you go get it. Uh, and one, when you talk about getting rid of the file system or something like that, what people are mostly talking about is Stop making people locate things by hunting through folders that are nested inside each other. Stop making people be aware of file paths. Don't, you know, kind of like how iPhoto did for your photos. You don't know where they are on disk. You're not supposed to know they're managed by the application. It's 
simplifying that vision because as we all know from many years experience in dealing with computers most people do not understand quote unquote the file system and when we say that what we mean is people don't know where the heck things are they don't they don't visualize the hierarchy of folders that's rep, that's created by you know the illusion of the hierarchy of folders is created by the file system they have that's not in their head so they don't know where things are and there are many reasons for that but i go into my whole big spatial finder rant again but uh, the bottom line is they don't understand it they don't understand open save dialog boxes. The only place they know how to find is the desktop because it's underneath everything. Anything beyond that, they have no idea. And it just it's it's not a good fit for people. And as I think I said at some point, maybe it was one of these shows or maybe in a review, at this point in the experiment, I think we can confidently say that it's not a problem of education. There are generations of people who have grown up with computers their entire lives and still have no idea where the heck anything is. Obviously, that way of organizing files, while it works great for, for nerds and computer geeks, does not work great for most people. And so it's a bad model. So Apple, true to form, is going to say, we're going to solve this problem by, let, let's take away that assumption. Let's, let's not, we don't know what we're going to do instead, but we don't want to make you hunt around for stuff. So iTunes, it manages all your stuff. You're not supposed to care where they are on disk. iPhoto, it manages all your photos. You're not supposed to have folders full of stuff that you, that you manually rename into years and do all this stuff. And we have to keep track of it. We're just we're going to hide that from you, right? That's not what I'm talking about when I talk about file systems. I know the word is overloaded. What I'm talking about, and this goes back to your car engine analogy, uh, which is a good one, is that you know people don't know what's inside the the uh, under the hood of their car, and they don't care. They just want the thing to go. That's all true. But the Apple situation would be as if Apple, the car maker, was still selling carbureted engines, if you know, ignoring regulations and and all those you know emissions and stuff like that. They're like, oh, you don't have to know what's in the cover. Just buy under the hood. Just buy what you want. An Apple engine, and it was like an engine from 1972. Mm. The big giant air filter and a carburetor on it, and you know, tremendously low horsepower per liter, and it sucked gas like crazy, and it spit out. Let you know, even though perhaps especially since modern cars, we know less and less about what's under the hood. Engine technology has advanced tremendously. The number of the amount of power we get out of a liter displacement has been increasing tremendously. Fuel efficiency is going up. We have cylinder deactivation. We have increases, uh, advances in the materials used to make engines, uh, advances in turbocharging, removing turbo lag and, and superchargers and, you know, hybrid technology. Engine technology advances like crazy. And there's not a single car manufacturer that can get away with saying, nah, our engine's good enough. It's all right. Oh, we don't need any of that stuff. We don't need any of those friction reducing things we don't need overhead cams we don't need direct injection eh, cylinder deactivation that seems pointless our engine is fine don't worry about it it's under the hood the car will go it'll be fine engine is fine you don't have to worry about it and uh, you know in car the car world you'd say well certainly it's going to come to a head where someone's you know again ignoring government regulation they're going to say i get seven miles to the gallon out of, out of this car i'm not going to buy any more of these apple cars they get seven miles to the gallon i'm going to buy a honda i got 37 miles to the gallon i'm going to buy a hybrid and get 50 or you know whatever you can do Eventually, consumers start to notice the difference. So far, Apple has been betting that with these little tweaks that it's making to its ancient, you know, <laughs> catalytic converter, uh, not catalytic converter, carburetor sporting engine under the hood, that people won't notice. They'll say, eh, it's good enough. Especially since they don't have anything to compare it to usually because Macs only run on HFS Plus. You can't install Mac OS X on some other file system and compare the performance, right? Uh, so you can't say, whoa, I installed, uh, you know, I'm, I'm booting Mac OS X from a ZFS volume and it's way faster. And, and, and incidentally, it, it may be the case that ZFS isn't faster depending on how the implementation deals with the checksums and everything. But any, any other file system, uh, you can't do a comparison. And since computers and hardware keep getting faster, your Mac keeps getting faster too. And it's kind of, it's harder for consumers to notice 
you know, I think this would be faster if, if if Apple's file system coalesced IOs into larger blocks and deferred them so it could do them all at once. And I think this would be faster if more than one thread could access the file system at once. These are thoughts that are not entering someone's head. But for people who know about car engines or file systems, we can all see yeah. that this horrible smoke belching thing that Apple's got under the hood is so far behind the times. And we just think, boy, imagine how much better it could be if we had a, a modern high-performance injury and, you know, naturally aspirated getting 110 horsepower per liter out of it with titanium connecting rods and just, you know, we know what's possible because we see everyone else doing it. So they're two totally independent things of navigating the hierarchy and the idea of that, that whole structure. And look, there's got to be something to store the data locally under the hood. Whatever that thing is, make it better, faster, stronger, protect your data, all that stuff. And, and again, for the, like, I don't care if it's here. I don't care if my device is bad. I'll just get it from the cloud again. Uh, Maybe that will be their solution that eventually... Uh, actually, I don't think that can be their solution either because you say, oh, well, if I drop my thing in the toilet, all my data is on the cloud and I don't worry about what's on the cloud and Apple's not putting their file system on the cloud. They're using some storage from you know EMC or whatever behind the scenes and, and that's all enterprise storage and costs tons of money and it protects your data and blah, blah, blah. I don't have to care, right? Well, you do have to care because if they're using some crappy file system on your iPhone or whatever and it, stuff gets corrupted and it doesn't notice and it uploads the crappy corrupted stuff to the cloud, the next time you get a device and download it, you're going to get corrupted stuff right back that the cloud dutifully preserved for you. And if your thing has no idea that it's corrupted, no one's ever going to notice because the cloud says, this is the data I got. It's not corrupted as far as I'm concerned. I'm checksumming it. This is exactly the data I got. But the phone corrupted it and it had no way to, to tell. Or your Mac corrupted it and had no way to tell. So this, this is a problem that absolutely must be solved eventually. And all we're arguing about is when that eventually comes. But we're done arguing now, aren't we? <laughs> you feel com- confident that you covered it all? We'll see you next week. I predict oh. we'll have a lot of follow-up here. A lot. Say, I don't know how interested people really are in file systems. Because the, pink, the people who are real file system nerds, I didn't say anything they already didn't know. And the people who aren't file system nerds may have been bored out of their mind. But we'll see. Who is not a file system nerd? So many people. So many. Let me ask you this. Would you rather it just go away? Would you Wish rather the, not? Co- the concept yes. of, of file yes. pass? Personally, no. Because I'm one of the people who understands the file system hierarchy. I right. like it when applications take over for me. I like that iPhoto lets me not know where stuff is. I let iTunes organize my music folders. But uh, anyone who's a developer for a living like realizes how far we are from, at the very least from developers, getting away from that. Because... Yeah, everything in development is based off file paths that you are aware of. Things have to be in certain locations to work correctly. There are things are certain well-known locations where stuff is stored or you have to set paths. You know. For me, no, I wouldn't like it to go away. But for consumer applications like iTunes and iPhoto, I like that. But there is a lot, uh, a long way to go to get a good solution because you know we all we've talked about those things before where it's like well iPhoto manages your photos or your iOS apps store their their documents but how do you share them and there's this tension between the old way and the new way and there's like well there's advantages in the old way in terms of having a single file worked on by multiple applications but once you go down that path then how do you find the file and what if you have too many files and Apple's working on that stuff I have more confidence in Apple's ability to experiment and figure out what to do in terms of hiding the file hierarchy let's call it so I don't get confused from the user. I don't think they've got that right yet, and I don't ever want it to be hidden from me, but I'm, I'm a nerd. But I think Apple will figure that out. But the under the covers, what's under the hood of your car, they need to make that a modern engine. 
And that doesn't matter what they do with that other stuff. They need a modern engine under there for something. It's, it's got to be stored somewhere. You got to start something somewhere. If they want to make a file system that has no hierarchy, I don't care. But make it reliable, make it fast, make it checksummed, uh, you know, make it high performance. All those modern things that all the other guys are doing, Apple needs to do somehow. All right, then. The end. The email will be coming in. If you want to send email, you go to 5by5.tv slash contact, and you pick hypercritical. From that, you can fill that out. It will send it to John and I, and uh, or me and John, as he likes to say. We will be able to read it, perhaps comment it, perhaps read it on the air or respond to it. John, you're very good about that. You care. I don't, I don't CC you on the replies, though, so you don't even know who I'm replying to. I don't, but I know that you respond to a lot of them and i know that uh in some cases you will be prompted by an email to s- devote a segment of the show to respond or to responding and the only promise i make is that i will read them all and i do you've said it before in other shows is that you don't feel that just because somebody sends you an email you don't feel obligated to respond to it uh no, even never. even to read it but certainly not to respond to it no i i always feel obligated to read it i read every email i get Unless it's spam or something, right? But respond, no. And uh, unsolicited PR email, which I get a lot of, I don't feel uh, an obligation to read that. But people who are emailing me about the show or personally or whatever, I read all the email. Do not respond to all of it, though. Mm. People who do that, that's a whole other show we should do as a back-to-work thing. I would love to get one of those people on the show and say, what makes you do that? Do you know people like that who respond to every email they get? I, I, I try to respond to all of them, but I'm very... I'm very bad at it, so I'm beginning to take your approach, which is to just not respond at all. But I feel bad because there are people who are asking questions, and then they would, you know, they need help, or they're they want to, you know, they you read their email, they tell a story. I'll tell you what, they may I don't know if this is true for you or not, but I have I have some tips that I I've read from other people who get probably way more email than than I do. I've only got th- maybe three thousand emails to respond to in my inbox right now. I'm not exaggerating. But I know people who get way, 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 way more than that. And the advice that I've I've often heard is, you know how they have the, and I know you're a big fan of the uh, TL semicolon DR concept, which is in, in once have a descriptive subject if, you, if you're putting in a subject, but if you're not, don't worry about it. And have the first line of the email be one sentence long that expresses everything else. And I get a lot of emails from people, and, and this is why I feel bad about it. There are people who write in, for example, about this show, they're, they're, they know how much they love the show. You know, they, this is their favorite episode. This is something that they really liked. Here's the thing they disagree. And after five or six paragraphs in, the actual reason that they wrote is, here's a neat link showing what you said was true or false or backup information. Put that as the first sentence. Um, you know, if, if it's a link, say, here's an article about this relating to episode this. That's the, f- and if you have more to say, say it later. But it's so hard to read, you know, a four or five, six paragraph email that obviously somebody spent a lot of time writing and they care and they really want us to read it. But like a lot of the emails that we get are, are, I don't know. It's, but so I feel, I do feel some obligation to, if somebody spent time writing an email, I, I want to, I want to spend time reading it. And, and if, if I'm there, then yeah, I feel like I should reply to it, John. 
You don't think you, you don't think, I know you say you don't owe it to anybody, but don't, isn't there some kind of conscience in there or some kind of sense of obligation to respond? I, I just don't feel that because I mean, at a certain point, like here's the way I view it is, it's an, it is not if, logical, right? If I respond to this person, if people ask questions, here, here's my thing. It's a cost-benefit analysis. If someone asks a simple question, I respond to it and give them the answer. Because yeah. like, it takes two seconds to do that. You know, so just do it, right? Uh, but some emails don't have a clear question in them or are more of a statement with an implied question or, or are just really long and ask tons and tons of questions. You know what I mean? And so I think if I were to respond to this person... First, if I think I can actually help them and I were to respond to them, only that person gets the benefit. Whereas if I discuss it on the snow, on the show, everybody who listens gets the benefit of uh, well, at least one half of the exchange or me providing what I think is the answer. Right? So I, I'm thinking like, it, I don't like to expend a lot of effort in a long email to a single person when I can get more bang for my buck by saying that same thing on the show with so many people here. So that factors into it too. Right. But even beyond that, after a certain volume of email... Uh, it's just not possible to respond to everybody. It's just not. I mean, no. uh, this the, the feedback from this show is not that bad, but like my R's address gets tons of email yeah, all the does. time from people who are saying, my computer's broken, can you help me fix it? <laughs> like, that's that's paraphrasing, but mm-hmm. like long, drawn-out, impassioned emails about me helping them fix the computer. And almost all the time, I have no idea how to help them. I don't even know where to begin. But the thing is, like, I'm not their personal tech support. I'm not going to, you know, if they ask me a simple question like, oh, do you know how to do the blah, 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 and I do, I respond. I'm not like begrudging them some knowledge that I have and I'm withholding it, but it's like, I don't know. I would have to do the same things you have to do. I'd be Googling around, figure, like, I'm not going to do your research for you and figure out why your computer's broken. Take it to the genius bar. That's what those guys get paid for, you know? So emails like that, I do not feel any obligation to do anything for them. It's all cost-benefit. If I can give you a quick answer and say yes, or respond. Even if it's just like someone saying, hey, I like the show, and I respond, thanks, glad you're enjoying it. That's, I'll do that. That's no problem, because that takes two seconds. But, these, you know, it's just the volume and depth of some of these emails can't be addressed. And if people really do have good points, I feel like I should address them in a format that my work will, uh, that will benefit more than just the person who's asking the question. So a blog post or talk about it on the show or something like that. So that, that's that's where I come down on this. So obviously I do have some kind of conscience because I don't want to leave the people hanging up the house on simple questions and say, oh, I'm not going to respond to that guy even though it's a one-word answer and I could make him happy. No, I'll, I'll do that. I do, I do feel like, you know, it. I just... How you ask the question change, and how complicated the question is changes your chance of uh, of getting an answer. And I have just an intuitive feel for that that works for me and I don't lose sleep over judgment calls that I make there. That was a quite, quite a sidebar. I know. A, a back to worky sidebar. All right. Well, that's it then for this episode. So uh, thanks to MailChimp.com. Thanks to AppsFire.com. Um, follow John at uh, S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A on Twitter. I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter. Appreciate you listening. Uh, please do consider... Uh, rating this show in iTunes. There's a little iTunes link on the uh, 5x5.tv slash hypercritical page or you can just search for hypercritical in iTunes and if you enjoy the show, rate the show. It helps keep it in the listings which helps new people find it which is very important. So thank you if you've done that and uh, if you haven't, please go check it out. 
can support the shows by going to 5x5.tv slash donate. And, uh, and that's it, John. We'll be back next week, though, on Friday. You're very adamant about this Friday thing. You want to keep it. You don't want to let go of that. There's a whole song about it. <laughs> that's right. So thanks, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Have a good week. Bye. Thank you.